0: The Cultists present...
1: Cinema of Cruelty.
0: And today on Cinema of Cruelty, we ask, have you ever wondered what it would be like to make time with an interdimensional tentacle Lovecraftian beast and a tower of light? Yeah, that one's too easy. We've all been there. Well, have you ever wondered if the grumpy old bastard who makes you swab the deck might actually be a Neptunian god who sadistically delights in cereal-feeding new sailors to the seagulls? Still too easy? Is that bird outside your window that's looking at you right now, is it trying to kill you? Can it see your soul? Do you have a soul? Is this even really happening right now? Are you crazy? Does it matter? Let's find out. Because today, we're looking directly into Robert Eggers' 2019 film, The Lighthouse. So keep calm, lay back, and think of Nova Scotia. Brought to you by the self-abuse of Robert Pattinson, the most vile and violent of seagull homicides, the double, nay, triple labia of mermaid vaginas, scatological nihilistic existentialism, motherfucking tentacles, and the seagulls of vengeance. And, of course, our safe word today is reality. Anything to add, Benji?
1: If I had a steak, I mean a raw bloody steak. I'd, I'd, I'd probably just eat it because to do anything else would ruin the purpose of the steak. So... You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only
0: of sight and sound, but of SPACE! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. HANJA! <laughs> I see you shiver with animals. Supported. Jesus.
1: Wept.
0: Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. London. Hi. Hi, Benji. Hi.
1: L- L- you know, it occurs to me. My name is Ben. No, it's not. Anyone who listens to this may think my name, my birth given name, is Benji because this one doesn't know how to call me anything else than some fucking dog from a Christian movie from <laughs> 1972.
0: <laughs> Might drop on that. Mic drop. Wait, Benji was a Christian movie? Well,
1: Christian movies in the 1970s were a little bit different than they are now. Like, today, Christian movies have a very hardcore political slant, but back then, a Christian movie was more or less just a thing parents could watch with their kids and know that At no point were we going to see tits or hear, you know, fuck or something like that. Like, if you're told it's a Christian movie and there's a dog, it's just a movie about a dog and it's fun and the dog is cute and, you know, that's all there is to it. That's a topic for another day, really. I'm a little
0: depressed now.
1: Really? Benji is a Christian movie?
0: I'm just saying, I like my children's movies, like, dark, depressing, and satanic.
1: Oh, for sure. Okay. Which
0: were most of the 80s children's movies. Did you really think
1: that Benji was a dark and satanic movie or, like, have hope that it was?
0: I mean, it is a conscious, sentient dog that talks and dresses in costumes. No, that's... I'm thinking Wishbone. Fuck it. (laughs) Fuck it. I've never seen Benji. I don't care. I knew I avoided all things Benji for a reason. You included. All right.
1: I don't even need to record anything now.
0: This was great. Moving on. So Wishbone is superior to Benji in all ways. That's that's the takeaway that we've learned right now.
1: Admittedly, a young Jensen Ackles never appeared on a Benji movie, so Wishbone does have that going for Once again,
0: 2-0 Wishbone. So... The Lighthouse has a lot of things, but it does not have dogs that speak and perform or act out classic literature. How did we first hear about this movie?
1: Um, I, I, I started hearing about this movie just on the internet. When I see new film from A24, I'm like, okay, let's see what A24 is up to now because I have yet to see anything from A24 that I'm like, oh, they didn't need to do that. Uh, saw a trailer for this one I'm like oh choices were made here you know this is a a bold direction to take black and white and at the time it just looked like you know like one three three ratio I'm like wow okay and it's just these two guys the whole time oh boy what do we have in store here and I was excited to see Robert Pattinson in in the thing because I like the direction that guy is taking with his career he's Definitely done a full 180 from his days as a sexy vampire.
0: As far as the lighthouse for me, I mean I had seen the previews and heard of it. The first time I watched it, however, was with my parents. Oh yeah. So my parents okay. came to visit mm-hmm. me, and I apparently don't know my parents at all because they brought with them on their iPad the the HD version of the Lighthouse. <laughs> and my dad tells me, I have a new favorite movie and you should see it. <laughs> and so he hooks it up to my TV and I mean I, I Knew already sort of what I was in for watching mm-hmm. The Lighthouse. And, I mean, the movie's fucking fantastic. I loved it. Mm-hmm. But I was not anticipating my parents to be so excited by this movie that apparently my dad has now seen it eight times. He finds it to be some sort of poetic work eight of genius. Eight times. Yes. Yeah, so. I, can,
1: I can't think of a movie that's less than a year old I've gone back to and rewatched eight times. So, um, yes, I I loved this movie so very much um everything about this movie is just so gloriously insane and it's the kind of insane this is like when we say theater of cinema of cruelty i think to the common man or woman this is a cruel movie to watch because it's black and white does it's like not widescreen everyone's used to widescreen these days and it's a claustrophobic Fuck piece, or like brain fuck, mind fuck, whatever you want to call it.
0: It's just fucking everything you got is fucking really what's everything.
1: happening here. Yeah. I mean, there's in one... the best way. One thing about this, like, I'll say my one critique of the film, my one critique is that this has to be entered into a very sad category of films, which is movies in which William Dafoe appears where we do not see his dick.
0: That's, that was your, your one thing, you are just waiting, you're just sitting there waiting for... Some Defoe penis? I
1: mean, let's face it. If there was going to be a movie where we see Willem Defoe's dick, it's like Antichrist and this. It just seems like at some point.
0: I'll give that to you. Between those two films, yeah. Defoe, come on.
1: Yeah, I mean, Antichrist is even worse because you think you see his dick, but it's not his dick. It's like a stunt dick.
0: Oh. Uh, well, at least we have that fantasy to, to combine, I guess.
1: One of these days. I think when he goes for the Oscar, he's, uh, he's gonna hang it.
0: Fair enough. So that's your one critique. What is the best thing about this film?
1: The rest of the movie. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I would say the the best thing about this film, yeah, the atmosphere, oh, the sound, the cinematography. So yeah, just really, really a lot of it. But my favorite thing about it is its incorporation of folklore, and so that'll be that'll be my first little sort of pin uh, in something. We'll we'll get back to the folklore, and I know you'll get back to the cinematography. So. Uh, some
1: of the, uh, just technical aspects about this movie in general for <laughs> sure. So I'll I'll begin and. No, I'll begin. You'll begin. The
0: scene opens. Thank God. (laughs) On a dark and stormy afternoon. Imagine a world. Exactly. What is going to be interesting and what Benji... G, not Ben, we'll talk about later, will be some of the, the camera work and the cinematography that's happening with why this scene looks the way that it does. But... Almost everyone that I have seen this with, because now I've seen it twice, so I'm on Mm -hmm. the path, I guess, to follow in the footsteps of my father and just watch (laughs) this a bunch with other people, but there's this reaction that the screen is square. People are like, what's going on with that aspect Mm -hmm. ratio? And so we'll put a pin in that aspect ratio, but Mm -hmm. it does sort of set the scene for being a very kind of time period piece film, and this is going to be set in the 19th century. It is sort of semi-based off of Two different true stories, one that happened in, I think, 1801, the other one in 1900. And so we've got kind of a, a combo here of the beginning and the end of the 19th century in lighthouse keeping. And this film, right from the beginning, we know that it is going to be gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. These two guys are coming onto an island. The two ones that they're sort of relieving are going to leave the island. And then these two guys are just stuck, isolated and alone. Keeping the lights. Mm. This is not a film that we necessarily need to plot point by plot point because there's just so much weird shit that's going to happen. It's going to go mm. in and out of reality and whatnot. But what was your next thing you kind of noticed? Well, I
1: mean, Pat, he looks depressed the moment he gets on that island. Walks in and he's just observing the place, puts down his gear, um, and he... One gets on his bed, unfurls a mattress, and out of the mattress he picks a little bit of cloth, he knows there's there's a tear in the mattress, and pulls out a little wooden mermaid that he does not yet know he is going to have a future with that little wooden
0: mermaid. But he's intrigued and the audience is intrigued because it's a little talisman of a mermaid that's been stuffed into a mattress that looks like it's also been stuffed with human hair. Um, there's like a serial killer component to this mattress, which is actually just time period accurate, but it's mm. kind of gross. Like he's taken out like animal hair and stuff.
1: Uh, uh, Willem Dafoe comes in and just tells him like, this is where it's going to be. You need to mind the shingles. They're going of dripping on you. And Willem Dafoe farts uh, for the first of seven times. Yes, I counted. Oh you did count? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So he farts. Well, it's not even just
0: that he comes in, like he's already in the room behind yeah. the pillar. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's just he's just taking a piss behind mm. a pillar That's in their true. in their room. And so it's an already introduction to there's going to be these sort of tight cramped spaces. There's going to be a lot of sort of just body stuff, and they're going to be very close quarters to each other, not Mm. a lot of boundaries.
1: Yes, and it's very quiet at first. Uh, Pattinson just kind of goes out. He begins shoveling some coal, and we're already getting a good idea that this is, like, hard work. He looks, like, already looks just grizzled, tired, sweaty. He's smoking while he shovels coal, which I don't know how safe that is. I've never... I don't smoke and I don't shovel coal, but I don't know. The two of them put together just <laughs>
0: seems like a bad idea.
1: Somehow seems off. And we get their first dinner together where Defoe is like going on and talking and talking. And he like, raises his glass for a toast. And Pattinson does not raise his glass. And this is where Defoe, he's already having a problem with Patty. He's like, It's his bad luck to not return a toast, meaty. I, I want to default to a pirate voice for this <laughs> character. You know, Defoe is, like, he's just short of saying, like, I, or Avast ye, or something like that. But besides that, he kind of sounds like a pirate. He's not a pirate, but it's close.
0: He uh, does just look like the pinnacle of yeah. 19th century lighthouse keeper. For sure,
1: like, yeah. It's
0: pretty amazing.
1: Big beard, he's got the, the hat, the, yeah. And... The
0: wool sweaters. Yeah, that hat that at some point just makes him look like some sort of old man in the sea version of the salt shaker girl yeah. <laughs> in some capacity.
1: I'm pretty sure he has a corncob pipe as well. Oh, yeah. That he's constantly either smoking out of or what have you. Um <laughs> Uh, let's see. They, they mentioned, that Pattinson is going to be there for four weeks. Uh, that's like, that's how long he's going to be there. And then he's off to do it. Like he's off on his own. This
0: is his first time doing some little lighthouse keeping. Yeah. And he also seems to be a very rule abiding boy because when William Defoe offers him some drink, he's going to say, no, it is in the handbook. That that's we cannot true. drink on the job. Yeah. And that's when William DeFoe starts giving him shit. Like, you, you gotta you gotta drink because yeah. it's bad luck. So folklore spotting one in terms of superstitions. And there's going to be a ton of them around here, especially with bad omens and bad luck. And a lot of them are accurate to, to sailors. But little uh, Robert Pattinson's going to stand up and he's going to pour his drink down the drain mm. in an act of defiance to his elder but also in concurrence with the rules mm-hmm. and fill it with water and toast with that yeah. which is also bad luck to toast with water that... so he's just violating shit all over the place
1: and it makes sense because the water that he does get is vile it, it's like one, one of those ground pumps that uh, i never really understood how those things work one of those metal things that, like ka-chunk ka-chunk and water comes out of the spout yeah and he takes a sip of it and like just gags on the water. And Defoe begins to laugh at him. I'm like,
0: <laughs> that's what you get for not just drinking straight vodka, bro. Exactly. And this will be one of the first sort of moments too to really introduce. Um, and we'll we'll talk about some of the different kind of theories, I guess, for or interpretations, since mm-hmm. there is no direct answer. And we'll start that right now. The director himself has made it explicitly clear that there's not supposed to be one specific answer to everything that's going on here
1: i believe that, but
0: there are some options and one Mm -hmm. of the most basic non-supernatural things is that we are going to see the story of two men that are going to start suffering dehydration Mm -hmm. and this is sort of the first moment that we see with this is that the water here is very undrinkable and they're not going to really drink any water for the rest of the yeah. film.
1: And not to nitpick this, but they it seems like they could have set up a cup outside because it's constantly raining. They could have just, you know, had rainwater, but they don't...
0: Yeah, they don't do rainwater. They don't do steam. I mean, you can kind mm. of transform, sort of boil some stuff and, mm. and get the steam. There are ways to get water. People do keep lighthouses, and mm. so... Most of them are automatic now, but at one point in time, you know, this was a, a common profession. There were ways to have water, but uh, they're not going to put in the effort to actually hydrate, and that's going to possibly have some interesting consequences. When
1: you got some hooch like that, who needs water?
0: Really? Yeah, I mean, we have kerosene, but yeah. we'll get there.
1: I believe this is around the time that uh, Pattinson asks him, like, I would really like to see the light. I like to get up there at the top. And Defoe just puts the kibosh on that immediately, like, no that light is mine, or takes a very possessive nature towards that light. Yeah, and he's going to
0: call that light she mm-hmm. a lot, too, yeah. which is not uncommon in Mariner culture to sort of anthropomorphize or personify different types of objects and imbue them with sort of a femininity. Um, they do that with ships a lot, too. Oh, yeah, sure. But yeah, this this light is something special to mm-hmm. him. And he's also going to talk about how his last wiki went fucking crazy, also wanting to see the light.
1: Because <laughs> he thought the light had some sort of supernatural power.
0: Yeah, that it was filled with St. Elmo's fire itself and that looking into it would bring him salvation. He also mentions at some point that this wiki that eventually went crazy saw the light and died or perished or killed himself. Mm-hmm had one eye. Um oh, did and he that's have gonna one eye. That's gonna matter later. Oh, so and okay. um, yeah, this yeah. one eyed psychotic wiki that just wanted to look into that light.
1: One eye, yeah. Um, so let's see. Real, I remember like I wrote down, is that a real manual? Because at some point we see the manual that Pat refers to. Oh really and my grandfather was a navy man and I actually have like an old navigation manual that belonged to him. And so, like, I knew that books like this were a thing. They were very detailed. i like, I kind of want to see this manual. I want to see, like, all the stuff that's in there. That would be fascinating.
0: Yeah, I don't actually know to what extent they, they used lighthouse mm-hmm. rules, but I would imagine that not drinking would be one of them. Yeah,
1: pretty helpful, but, like, it's always the first thing that you break. Because because
0: <laughs> you're isolated you're on, on, a, islands you're on a fucking
1: island, with
0: miserable, gross <laughs> Defoe. Not that William Defoe in general is miserable and gross, but his character in this oh, is super yeah. gross. Oh, yeah. It's so great how gross he is because the entire it, thing, he's oh. just going to be like. Barting and pissing and eating food that's not quite getting in his mouth. So it's mm-hmm. just going to be kind of like falling out of his yeah. mouth. He's going to be spitting. It's just the
1: everything. Way, the, uh, we'll get to it. But like the way that Pat later on describes Defoe's smell honestly made me gag a little bit like later in the movie. But we'll get to that. We have a moment where we have this gorgeous like shot going up the stairs, of the lighthouse remind me of like a, a shot from a Hitchcock film, Blackmail, his first sound film. Uh, We get to the top, and Defoe is at the light, staring at it. uh, Strips down and uh, just kind of raises a toast. And I couldn't really make out what he was saying. He said something like "ye." Yeah,
0: it seems like he's toasting the light and the sea, and we're not sure if that light toasts back because, once again, that'd be bad luck and bad form on the light. But um, he does, Yeah. yeah, seem to have a relationship with the light. But mm-hmm. the the shot, yeah, leading up this kind of really gorgeous and sort of like panning crane shot where it starts at the very base of the lighthouse and then it's just going to sort of steady cameraize all the way up so mm-hmm. that we get the floor to the top. They're going to do this a lot throughout the film, which is really great for kind of a spatial grounding. Because there was the scene right when Robert Pattinson first walks into the main sort of house mm-hmm. that they're going to be staying in. And the camera follows him through the different rooms. It follows him up the stairs. Sure, yeah. And this actually reminded me a lot of the shot from the opening of Serenity, the Firefly like, follow-up movie. Walk through the whole um, ship. Where they walk through the whole ship. And I remember seeing an interview with Joss Whedon where he was talking about how it was really kind of important for him in that kind of moment to give people this sort of spatial awareness of, mm-hmm. How cramped and small these sort of spaces really are, and the way to do that, right, is to actually just walk you through it.
1: And I'm pretty Um, sure, and we get
0: this here too. I'm pretty
1: sure, like that was also because on the show they never had a full ship set.
0: Well, they still didn't for the movie either, so that was part of the issue too, is making it look like one long take (laughs) when they were actually like physically moving to different places. So there are like times where they'll kind of like pass a pole and you know match cut it. But this one they actually did build the the full set, so they were able to, Mm. yeah. Really spatially People moved. People thought was it was an actual
1: lighthouse. Like, apparently, from stories I read online, that they thought like, "Oh, wow, new lighthouse!" Like, no, it's it's only a model. You know? <laughs> uh, I
0: mean, they built it. It's a lighthouse. <laughs> it's like, like, yeah,
1: definitely more of a real thing than like a model of Camelot or something.
0: Yeah, it's like when you build a building, like it's still a building. <laughs>
1: um, But yes, so uh, Pattinson he goes walking. Uh, he goes out to the sea, and briefly he gets a vision of logs. We'll find out what logs mean later on. But he feels like he sees logs. Walks out into the water. And then deep in the water, what does he see? A mermaid.
0: Well, he also mm-hmm. sees the floating, face down corpse did, of someone. Did he in the see the water. it that time?
1: I didn't know. Yeah, it was it's something. sort of somebody
0: just floating in the water. Oh, that's he right. Walks he walks towards see,
1: it. He sees a body in the water. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, like, he, the way that cuts, like, the camera cuts between him walking towards the thing and the thing in the water. And whenever time it cuts back, he is, like, way deeper in the water than the timing makes sense for him to be. So it seems like he is just rapidly sinking into the water to get out to this thing. And then when he is down there, he somehow sees a mermaid in the water.
0: So And then he wakes up as if this was all a dream. Mm -hmm. And so since he was the one that we were seeing through his eyes a little bit, William Defoe up in the lighthouse kind of making the toast and Mm -hmm. seeming... Reverence and a little bit sexual with the light Mm -hmm. was that part of his dream was it not Mm. although at the same time we do get some camera angles of william defoe in the lighthouse that would not have been from robert pattinson's pov from below so there's kind of a weird intermix
1: i'm pretty sure that like yeah the director themselves like mentioned that from the time that like pattinson is looking at those logs to i think the second to last shot in this movie Everything is from his point of view, like the entire movie is patents in this film, subjectively the rest of the movie. So, yeah, I think from the logs out, like we are always on his point of view.
0: Yeah, so that's why I think that first William Defoe lighthouse scene is so interesting and jarring from a POV perspective because... We do get that sort of straight shot at his face that's almost the lights POV, uh, at least angle wise. And yo. so that's the one moment we don't seem to have Robert Pattinson being our lens. This so I don't true. really quite know what to do with that yet, but we can revisit
1: it. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. What is it? It's the morning time. This is when Defoe is also telling him to like to mine the shingles. There's this beautiful little shot where the camera is like looking at Pattinson. And there's a mirror, like, I guess, like a shaving mirror or something right above his bed. And, and Defoe is in a way that, like, we see his face in the mirror. I'm like, I always love when yeah, the blocking of a scene works out mm-hmm. that way.
0: Those reflection shots? Yeah. And then I just rewatched *Talented Mr. Ripley the other day. And, oh my god, I forgot just how amazing the reflection shots are I've in never that. never watched so that one. I'll have to check that out We should out get soon. back to that one. But. Yeah. Uh,
1: Pat, uh, he goes outside, and I think he's adding fluoride to the water supply. I'm pretty sure it's flour because that's what, yeah, typically add to disinfect water, you know, a bit safer for drinking. Is it
0: Was it in the uh, the 1800s as well, or is he doing some sort of, like, borax? Like, there's some kind of, yeah, big chemical that yeah. he's, I mean, he's in there. Yeah, I he's
1: dumping, like, a half bag of some sort of white powder into this thing. Might be cocaine. I don't know. I mean, that was...
0: <laughs> Maybe that's the other, like, untold possible theories.
1: <laughs> but, yeah. And, um, uh, see. And he, like, stare. I just remember him staring into it, like, in the... Whatever he's putting in there like is swirling around the waters and creating all sorts of trippy patterns. It's uh, a
0: gorgeous shot.
1: Yes. He begins the work on the roof, and this is where he looks through the roof of the living quarters. There's
0: a people.
1: There's a people and sees Willem Dafoe's his his taught a little his
0: taut little bottom. Yeah, so at least we get we get some slivers uh, of, of a naked Defoe. Still no <laughs> cock, but he's definitely <laughs> <laughs> sort of lying prostrate on the bed, but his ass is kind of bent upwards a little bit, like it's kind of an interesting position. And mm. then he's I... like
1: got the long john, like you know, undies on,
0: but the flap is down. The flap is down. Why was the flap
1: down, William Defoe? What? The...
0: And then he's just kind of humping the mattress, yeah, in right? this like this gyrating moment as
1: he snores. It's like his ass goes up and down as he snores, like.
0: <sniffs> I... And so it's, it's, once again, Defoe being both, like, sexual but also really gross at the same time. <laughs> and Pattinson is kind of into it in some way because it's, he, he keeps it's looking. It's an intense moment
1: for him. Like, it's either really turning him on or really troubling him or both. Yeah, because both can work. Yeah, they can do both. Then, um, as he's walking around, he's, like, he's trying to take some coal into the fireplace. And there's, a, what what is by that door that's blocking his way? But a seagull. The seagull, the oh seagull. my god, the
0: seagull is so great.
1: Huh, what, uh, there's like something kind of interesting about the seagull.
0: The seagull only has one eye.
1: One eye, you say? He's
0: a one-eyed seagull. That's
1: fascinating. We've
0: what? heard something about a one-eyed thing before. That is, uh, that's interesting. And know. the seagull's a
1: dick. The seagull is a dick. This is where I began to wonder, like, is there CGI in this movie because these seagulls are just all acting like dicks in the best way. Oh my God, they're guys. bringing
0: it. Yeah. They're on caliber this with is, Defoe and Pattinson. I Defoe's would acting. say
1: this is the third, the uh, no, fourth best performance in the movie after Pattinson, Defoe, and Defoe's ass. Uh, yeah, there we go. Fourth best performance in the movie.
0: It's, uh, yeah, he, this little seagull was delightful in his dickery. And it also sort of reminded me at this moment of the fact that Robert Eggers' first film was The Witch. And in that movie... We won't do a lot of spoilers for for The Witch, but there is a goat. Okay. And this goat is a fucking dick.
1: Well, thank you for not spoiling it, because I haven't seen The Witch Oh, well,
0: then we should watch that, too. Okay. But, um, yeah, the goat is a dick in the way that the seagull is the dick. And so it just kind of maybe seemed like one of the auteur sort of elements of Robert Eggers as a filmmaker is having these... Strangely sentient animal characters, mm-hmm. where you're like, no, I, I believe that that thing can see my soul right now, <laughs> and so yeah, he can film these animals in a way yeah. that that makes them feel very yeah something.
1: Makes sense. So so he he delivers the coal, and then we get this scene that made my back hurt just watching it, where he has this like big canister of I guess oil or something that he has to carry up all the steps of the lighthouse. Oh, yeah. And he, like, watching the way he did it made, again, made my back hurt. Because, I mean, I know that this is common, like, you know, work ethic today, but he's lifting with his back.
0: Yeah. He's not like
1: Lift with your legs, man. Come on. You're going to be an old man by the time you get to the top of those stairs. But
0: it's also, like, 1801, so right. he probably only has like eight more years to go. Anyway. Is it 18? I thought
1: it was 1890. Is
0: it 1890? Movie. I don't know. The, like I said, the things that these kind of took from span mm. from 1801 to 1900. So An exact date
1: they're... is not important to do <laughs> this. The plot, either way,
0: movie. like he's probably gonna die young, I uh, mean.
1: yeah. But he takes it all the way, and like we have to hear him grunt and lift and like drop this thing on each step as he goes,
0: oh,
1: <laughs> dong.
0: Yeah, the sound editor is great on this, too.
1: Oh, yeah. Very good.
0: But it's the- going to be part of the montage of just mm-hmm. how much work that this guy oh, yeah. puts in in a day. He's shoveling coal. He's mm-hmm. dragging shit up the stairs. He's scrubbing stuff. Meanwhile, Defoe is just staring into a light. Yeah. Like an asshole.
1: And when he finally does get to the top, like, one, Defoe is, like, coming down from the light itself into, like, the lower level of the top of the thing. And he basically tells him like, you didn't need to bring that that whole thing up here. You just use this, like gives him a smaller canister that I guess it's he's like a
0: watering can, yeah, a kerosene can Yeah,
1: like just use this next time, dumbass. Also
0: take this all back downstairs. Yeah, and then
1: take it back downstairs. And then Pattinson is like kind of looking at the ladder leading up to the top where the light is and Defoe like quickly locks the thing up. Again, like he's very possessive of that top level, that top light. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't want Pat getting up there basically just says like you don't go in there
0: and like the more this is going on, the more that we're pretty sure at some point Robert Pattinson is going to reach his limit and snap and just kill this motherfucker. Yeah,
1: that's that's laid out pretty. Defoe quickly.
0: is not a pleasant guy to work for.
1: No, not 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 for definitely not for 4 weeks. <laughs>
0: Especially when they have dinner again later that night. They
1: do have dinner again. And um,
0: Defoe had seen out of his window or his mm-hmm. perch that Robert Pattinson had been throwing stones at this seagull to try to mm. get him to move which the seagull took a very long time to do. Because, yeah. like, you don't rush the one-eyed seabird. You, like, the seabird is control of his own space. Would you
1: say that it's bad luck to kill a seabird?
0: You know what? I would say it was bad luck to kill a seabird because Defoe certainly says it's bad luck to kill a seabird. Tis bad luck to kill a seabird! And the second that Robert Pattinson's like, yeah, okay, old man, we get That's, the seabird slap.
1: Yeah, he just, like... Full on, back, not even back, like, full hand, open hand slap to Pattinson's gorgeous face. And that's when Defolia yells out, tis bad luck to kill a seabird. And
0: you're like, whoa, man.
1: Like, uh, uh, okay, okay, cool. Um...
0: <laughs> and we will learn at some point that this is because mm. one of the superstitions is that the seabirds contain the souls of dead mariners. Mm-hmm. And it, so Is
1: it this thing that we discover that, or is uh, that I later think it's on? a little bit later. Okay, but okay.
0: what is going to be then interesting when we get this idea that they contain the the souls of dead mariners? So we have a one-eyed seagull, and we have a dead one-eyed mariner. And so, <laughs> coincidence, or is this perhaps actually indeed the, the embodied
1: seagull soul? With the one eyes. This, this is strange. Yeah. My next n- note after the seabird theme is: Did Pat put nipples on that thing? Because we see him holding the wooden mermaid, and they're like on the, the breast, like the lumps on it that are meant to be the breast. It looks like he's taken a pin or something <laughs> and put nipples. Were they like, not t- there before? I don't think they were there when he first got it.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
1: my dear, the full note, the full line of my notes is just: Did Pat put nipples on that thing? Question mark. He masturbates.
0: Oh, he's already masturbating? I've got the... T- I focused on the Defoe masturbation because this is also it's, the tentacle slither. It's, right? uh,
1: he'd like I think he does that. Then he sees Defoe naked at the light.
0: I mean, Pattinson is going to masturbate his way through this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: Actually, one of the funnier things I found when researching this was uh, when they were interviewing Pattinson and he talked about, like, uh, that's when I had to film my, my furious masturbation scene. But he talks about, like, there's only one no, 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 dude. You, this is like multiple times in this movie you masturbate and it is never mellow.
0: Yeah, and it's not like the room situation where it's clearly the same sex scene that was filmed that's then just inserted again and again and again. Like, he's in physically different spaces for his different masturbation scenes. Uh, we will so. never
1: not find a way to bring up the room.
0: That's uh, true. Um, nor, nor should we ever find a way not to bring up the room. But, uh, yeah, so th- that is interesting that he, maybe Maybe he only thinks of one scene as furiously masturbating.
1: Yeah, they're all furious though. I mean, that might be his point of view, but
0: Maybe it's the range of nuance in his emotion. Maybe he one is. is furious. Maybe one is... Fast? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One is fast and one is furious, and he, the third one is fast and furious.
1: Ah, uh, very true. And then the other one, he's just kind of too fast, but a little too furious.
0: So, to here nor keeps, there, keeps going. We
1: also never not find a way to bring up the Fast and the Furious movies. Also true. Yeah.
0: That F9 poster, though. Okay, so, <laughs> we've got him masturbating uh-huh. to mermaid statues, and then mm-hmm. we also have Defoe, who's still up in his lighthouse. He's up in that light. And... Pattinson is going to sort of see from below Mm -hmm. just all of what's going to look like this viscous fluid just dripping down through the grate.
1: And at first you're like, damn, Defoe's got some volume.
0: Yeah, it starts to drip a little bit. So you're (laughs) like, "Okay, so Defoe's like masturbating, too, Mm because, you know, they're sailors on an island. What Mm -hmm. else are they going to do except for... Hopefully maybe each other at some point. And the movie's gonna gonna tease us. We'll get to that. But I don't know if it ever sort of like fully consummates. So in the interim, yeah, like let's let's just give Defoe some. But then more and more just keeps yeah. coming
1: or through the grave. That, oh, I don't think that's Defoe. I, something else is up there. And I was like, wow, what's,
0: what's up there? Give it better that he just comes like a god, which mm-hmm. might be another possible interpretation. He might be a god. <laughs> but yeah, it's some sort of viscous fluid, and Pattinson's gonna look up. And this really great Lovecraftian tentacle is just going to kind of slither. It's a
1: tentacle. I'm like, oh, oh, there's tentacles in this movie. Okay. Yeah.
0: So apparently whatever Defoe's doing up there sexually with the light also involves some tentacles. But whether or not those are tentacles that come from the light, that come from the sea, that are maybe William Defoe's character transformed, Mm -hmm. maybe he's the tentacle beast, or maybe is just crazy. <laughs> These are all options.
1: And all of them could be true. And
0: all of them are true. Yeah, Not even just could be true, they're all true simultaneously. They're so
1: all I'm true, I think, like. yeah.
0: So, um, yeah, that, that unsettles him mm-hmm. a little bit. And then...
1: They're having... I think they have dinner again. They have dinner, like, several times stuff. Yeah, this movie.
0: Well, that, that's neither here nor there. And, but the bird in the well matters. hmm
1: The bird... The bird in the well? Is that... All, are we already to the bird in yeah, the well? Yeah,
0: well, we're, like, we're kind of... You know, we're pushing through because we've got a lot of other stuff yeah, okay. to kind of revisit and talk about. True, so, true. At some point, he's going to get up in the morning, come down the stairs, pump out that water, and it's just going to be sludgy. Oh, yeah. And gross. Mm-hmm. So gross that it's even sort of this dark brownish... Almost red, even though it's a black and white film, a color that's sort of coming out. So he goes to investigate, and we have what is really just sort of a dying—it's not even dead
1: yet—seabird
0: yep. mm. that has fallen in because he's forgotten to close.
1: I guess so. Yeah. The
0: thing. I don't know. But the seabird already looks a little, like, mangled and gnarled in there, so I don't know how that happened. It
1: seemed like something else happened to the seabird that we just did not see. Maybe another seagull got to it first. Maybe he
0: already killed one.
1: Maybe he already didn't. We didn't didn't know.
0: Maybe he's just a nocturnal seagull murderer Oh yeah.
1: But, uh, does someone, does something else come to the scene to check things out? That
0: amazing, magnificent, goddamn one-eyed seagull (laughs) The one-eyed seagull? is there again. And he's just perched up there, and he is staring into Robert Pattinson's soul and judging the fuck out of
1: him. Oh, yeah. and uh, Pattinson, he doesn't take this very well.
0: No, because he can tell that he's being judged, and he's like, I didn't kill this thing, Yeah, and I'm sick of you, and he just grabs it, and then we go on to a full feather jacket situation. Good
1: God. Where
0: it's just...
1: Holy shit. He
0: beats that thing. He,
1: like, yes, takes this thing and just starts swinging it onto the rock like hard as hell and it is like thank god this movie is in black and white because if not there wouldn't be enough fake blood dye in the world to cover the guts coming off of this and, thing
0: I mean I'm really hoping that was a fake bird I'm assuming it, it was am sure um, it was a fake bird but at people. the same time like it's a really nicely done yeah. like bird carcass it's like um, fold
1: me you know
0: and a lot of like good editing because it really yeah. does just look like he just massive mean, that, that'd
1: be another thing like if this movie were in color it might be more obvious that there was a fake bird. Who knows? Like black and white covers a lot, uh in as far as special this is effects. Very true.
0: So yeah, he, he murders this bird mm-hmm. and then the second that he does, we get this sort of pan up shot to the weather vade. Oh. And the yeah. wind just changes
1: oh. direction. And because Mary Poppins coming. And oh it, like, oh no. Sound. <laughs> I mean, Mary Poppins
0: is also a horrifying like satanic visitor <laughs> on this island. But um <laughs>
1: They cut that scene. They cut that scene. For time.
0: But the wind is going to change, and this will be another kind of possible implication, interpretation that there is some supernatural, ominous shit at work here. Or it's just coincidence or he's crazy and he's lost all sense of time and these have actually happened like a week apart from each other. We don't know. Again,
1: could be all things. Possibly is.
0: <laughs> but the wind changes and it's supposed to be the day or so before they're finally going to get off the island. The four weeks are up. They're going to have another dinner where William Defoe finally gets Robert Pattinson to drink with him. Mm-hmm. And boy, do they drink. They,
1: they drink.
0: They're going to drink until they pass out. Mm-hmm. And Robert Pattinson's going to wake up the next morning. Without his pants. I mean, his pants are pushed down to his ankles, huh. interestingly Wow, Yeah,
1: that's, that's kind of odd, isn't so it? So, like... I'm,
0: I'm hoping he got some, but we won't know for sure. In the background, Defoe is also passed out on the floor, but it's kind of subtle. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's in the back corner, yeah. and we just kind of see a hand <laughs> and a head. Yeah, Pattinson's going to go about some of his, his daily uh, chores and whatnot.
1: mm mm-hmm. and... um, I think they catch a lobster. Lobster will become a little important later on.
0: Technically, they've already caught the lobster before the dinner. This that's is they true, eat. Yeah. But what he's going to do while he's out and about is he's going to run into what first looks like the corpse of a woman. Oh, yeah. On the rocks. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then he approaches, and we get an unbelievably gorgeous close-up shot of this woman's face. Mm. I, just, I can't say enough about that shot. Yeah. So, like, it is really pretty. Oh, yeah. And then it sort of starts to pan down. As he kind of pushes the seaweed off of her body. And then we kind of get to the torso and we get to the hips and things are starting to look a little scaled, a little kind of like abject, uncanny. Mm -hmm. And then she's got a tail, like sort of a mermaid, a Victorian mermaid tail since they've changed throughout time.
1: Is this like a, do you mean a pre-Victorian mermaid tail?
0: Uh, Well, right now we don't see the mermaid vagina. So right now we just see, so... Once upon a time, um, with some of these... Uh, I
1: figured you would want to, like, explain this. Yeah,
0: mermaid, uh, sort of siren, undying type of things. We get this sort of idea or representation of these sea creatures that have tails, but they're actually split into two, sort Mm -hmm. of like legs, so that, you know, sailors could actually copulate with them. And then this Victorian sensibility of the mermaid came about, where Mm -hmm. they gave him kind of a single tail and sort of took away the genitals and Mm -hmm. whatnot. so made it an amorphous sort of, well, sexual creatures, but also like, how how would you really have sex with a mermaid? We're <laughs> going to find out later how you really have sex with a mermaid apparently in this. Oh, but no. that was also a purposeful collision of this sort of Victorianism. So yeah, it must be around the late 1800s to have this sort of idea of the Victorian mermaid that's been sort of puritanical and chastened in some sort of way, but then Mm. kind of given their sexuality back.
1: Yeah. But we see that we do see this, like, absolutely gorgeous shot of this woman's face. I've looked her up. This woman is like, this is the only movie that that woman has ever been in.
0: Interesting. She might be a model or something.
1: Probably most likely It's not even just
0: that the woman is beautiful. It's just that the shot, I mean, the woman is beautiful, but Mm. the shot itself is just so, oh my God.
1: And then she begins to scream at him. And it's not a human scream at all. It is like this... It on, is
0: the shriek of a siren. Yeah,
1: the shriek of a... And it's so appropriate. Yeah, okay, this would be kind of uh, something un, just as unhuman as possible, except for, the, like, the, the sexy lady part.
0: She does kind of wake up midway mm. through, or she opens her eyes to scream at him, but mm. until that moment where she opens her eyes, he's fondling, oh, non fondling, uh, either a passed-out, mm. almost drowned victim, and or a corpse. Mm-hmm. It's just fun to point that out. Yeah. Like he's he's about ready to get down with it's... what he thinks is the dead body of a washed-up woman.
1: He's about down for some corpse fucking, pretty much. Corpse
0: fucking, yeah,
1: corpse fucking. It's
0: always a great movie. We can get in some bonus corpse fucking. Just you know, for fun. I mean that too. Yeah. So it's... we
1: also get this. Like right after this is when we get this gorgeous shot of the two of them waiting for the ship. Oh my god! It's... Yes. And it's, like, the rain is coming in so hardcore. Apparently, they didn't have to, like, fake any of the weather for this movie because the weather where they filmed this was just that bad.
0: They filmed in Nova Scotia, right? Right, yeah, okay.
1: exactly. So, <laughs> sorry, Nova Scotia, but your weather sucks, you know? <laughs>
0: sometimes, sometimes, you know, out like, there on those island rocks.
1: But it's, like, yeah, just this gorgeous one shot of, like, the rain coming in so hardcore, like, at a nine-degree nine angle, and they're just standing out there, like, ugh. Uh God, yeah, it's uh, the so-called, the white lighthouse behind them. Yeah, yeah.
0: This. I don't know if it's Robert Eggers or his cinema photographer, but somebody understands just composition mm-hmm. to an astounding level. Someone
1: heard about that rule of thirds, I think, <laughs> indeed.
0: Somebody knows their stuff. And yes. Because there are just so many shots that just kind of get starred in terms of this is a work of art. Sort of like watching a a Tom Ford movie as well. That was one thing that stuck out with Dangerous Animals Mm -hmm. that uh, Tom Ford put out a few years ago, where you can just tell that he is a high-fashion, world-renowned photographer Mm -hmm. rather than a filmmaker because just every shot is just composed. (laughs) Like, it's a a vogue spread, so that's what's happening here, too, but the Ingrid Bergman Mm -hmm. depressing edition.
1: So eventually they figure out they either did not come or they... Missed the boat. Pattinson shovels more coal. He's clearly going crazy at this point. Going even further more crazy. Um, the food has been, has been wet. It's gotten yeah, wet at some point. Scenes
0: get even more montage They mm-hmm. get even shorter between the edits. So there is this kind of frenetic energy that's starting to speed up. Mm-hmm. It's going to culminate in them getting drunk all the time. So after this there's kind of just this fuck it sensibility and they are just gonna stay drunk.
1: There there's a scene like they've been drinking and this is when we get the whole what? You don't like my cooking? What? What no well first they do the whole like what? 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 What 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 that's what I'm talking about That whole exchange, which I think is awesome. This is where Pattinson uh makes the Interesting declaration that if he had a good, raw, bloody steak, which, you know, he's only had, you know, the seafood and the lobster, no steaks, which I could understand, like, if you're used to that, you want a steak. He's like, if I had a good, raw, bloody steak, I'd fuck it.
0: (laughs) Because that's what you do. That's what
1: you do. And this is, yeah, as you said, Defoe's...
0: And Defoe's response to Pattinson passionately declaring that he would fuck a steak... It's just, you don't like my cooking? (laughs) And
1: Pattinson, I love his response. like, oh, don't be such an old bitch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But Defoe apparently cares very much about his culinary prowess. Especially
1: the lobster.
0: Especially the lobster. You
1: like me lobster. Admit it. You like me lobster.
0: And Robert Pattinson won't admit it, and so Defoe is going to curse yeah. him oh. with the power of all oh. of the Greco-Roman <laughs> gods that he can summon.
1: <laughs>
0: and yeah. holy
1: shit, this is a speech that should have won. Uh, Defoe and Oscar.
0: He stands up and he summons those primordial like, beings to strike at thee. Hark, hark! Trident's trumpets sound
1: coming down upon point. Like I'm not, I'm not even going to try to do it justice. I don't have it in front of me. And Even if I did, I couldn't <laughs> give like what Defoe gives to this. But actually, when I when I was uh, watching this, it kind of reminded me how in interviews. I had seen that they were, like, for the writing, they were, like, sometimes inspired by a modern-day contemporary novelist, other, like, just uh, sea-shanty songs, and then also a little bit of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And this speech in particular made me think of that because, like, there's a absurdly long insult. Uh, It's in King Lear. Uh, I believe it's uh, Kent who says it. Like, he is trying to get everyone mad. And yells the guy, and it like just goes on and like just calls him like every freaking name in the book, and it's just this one long bit of prose, like not verse. It's <laughs> it just pro- keeps going. It just keeps going. There's no iambic uh, pentameter to worry about here. He is just like, and your mother's a- something, and you're stupid, and your, your father's stupid. You melt el- of elderberries. And you're like it's just ridiculous stuff like that. So that really made me think, like, oh, okay. I see. They're taking the right things from Shakespeare, Although, which is all the gritty, nasty stuff.
0: This one's also going to be a little prophetic because he's going to curse him to the point where may all of these tentacle sort of monsters from the deep destroy and consume his soul and spread his body mm. out on the rocks until the seagulls peck at his innards, right? Um, so he's, he's invoking um some, some dark, dark magic. And Robert Pattinson at the end is going to respond. How?
1: All right, have it your way. I like your cooking.
0: (laughs) And so it's like, all right, (laughs) motherfucker. Fine. Um, But the curse—the curse has already been set.
1: It's been been laid out there. There's nothing like I think we actually get like a thunderbolt and lightning crash as Defoe is talking. Like it just holds nothing back and is a fantastic moment. I think like the director said that when they were filming this. Defoe just had his eyes open wide with rage, for like two minutes straight, didn't blink once. Hannibal lectured the fuck out of his look. You know, just, yeah. Just committed. Uh, yeah, that's why I love Defoe. Like, the man just commits in ways that are never really necessary.
0: Well, the two of these guys, even though they are descending into insanity and working in very hard conditions, you can also tell below the surface that Robert Pattinson and William Defoe are just having a fucking fantastic time <laughs> doing what they're doing. They're just having fun. I would
1: hope so, because, man, there are, some of the, there are bits in this that could not have been pleasant to film, and I'll definitely get into those bits later on, but...
0: It seemed ooh. like there was a lot of joy that, yeah. that was happening here. and uh, so, so we
1: have that scene. Uh, Pattinson, once again, gazes into the light, as uh, as one will do, and tries to pick the lock.
0: So yeah, we're going to have just, like, a whole montage We oh, can kind of, so. like, sum it up pretty quickly that... At some point, they are going to get drunk again. Robert Pattinson <laughs> is going to admit that he is not actually named oh, Ephraim yeah. Winslow. Very true. His, he spills his beans. He spills his beans. Mm-hmm. That his name is actually the same name as William Defoe, mm-hmm. whose name in this is Thomas. Yeah, both um, Thomas. And he goes, my name's Thomas, too, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm Thomas Howell or Howard, because Howell's the real guy, but Howard, I think, is how he goes in this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a man... When I worked in logging back on the Mm. land that I hated, and I watched him die, and I didn't care, and then Mm. I took his name. And William Defoe's like, oh, why'd you spill your beans, Tommy? Spill your beans! And it's just gonna echo throughout the house in this really kind of great supernatural way, almost as if this confession has, like, fully damned him. Then... We get them running out of alcohol, and they're gonna start drinking kerosene with honey instead.
1: Oh yeah!
0: And everything I tried to look up mm. about this as to whether or not this would kill you, like I couldn't. I was like drinking kerosene question mark with honey question mark, I, and it just was all these poison control hotlines that kept popping up on my. Like, <laughs> I was like, well, this can't be a great sign.
1: I don't know about I don't know about kerosene, but there was I, I remember reading about this when I when I first saw the master. Uh, that Paul Thomas Anderson movie with uh, Joaquin Phoenix. And in that, Joaquin Phoenix plays uh, an alcoholic in World War II, and there's a scene of him unscrewing something from a torpedo and gathering it and mixing it with something else to like drink from that. And that was a real thing that sailors would do at the time. When they were out of alcohol, they would dilute fuel of that kind and drink it to just get some sort of buzz to Yikes. try to escape you know, the fact that you're on a ship in the middle of World War World War Two and the bomb just went off, so now you have exi- existential dread about the rest of yeah. the future. So it can't yeah. be
0: great for you, but fuck it, right?
1: Uh pretty much, yeah. I mean uh there's also that bit in the Matrix, uh, which of course is meant to be taken as fact, where uh Cypher hands Neo like this mug of something and he's like, here, takes the edge off and Neo takes a sip of it. It's like, <laughs> and cyber's like, yeah, you like that? It's good for two things. Clean engine grease and killing brain cells.
0: So there's precedent.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: Although there was that drug that was popular, not popular, popular is the mm. wrong word, but a problem that was going around Eastern Europe and Russia, primarily, Mm. Uh, in the early 2000s and it was called crocodile and it was mostly gasoline mixed and cut with a couple of other ingredients that people would inject into themselves and the Mm. second that somebody tried the drug crocodile they had about a year life expectancy Uh. over time and why the drug got the name that it did was because the something in the gasoline would start to necrotize the skin near the injection site. And so mm. pictures of the aftermath of this drug use would just be kind of all of this rotting flesh and a way that looked almost like crocodile skin. I
1: think that's like, I remember Not hearing great. about like, trying to come off the drug, like people were being put into induced comas. Yeah. To avoid the withdrawal symptoms from that drug, so yeah. You want
0: a fun trip? Google crocodile drug. <laughs>
1: don't actually. Don't ever Google anything that London Do says it. to Google. Don't Do it. just just don't. So he spills his beans. Um, I think at one point he's going insane. And what is it? Uh, just now. <laughs> just go- now he's going well, he's insane. Also, a, like kind of a trippy moment where he sees what I'm assuming. What I'm I assume is meant to be the guy that that died in the logging accident. Whose identity he took over. Yeah. And then he turns around and sees Willem Dafoe, kind of like there is this strange moment where he, I guess he's like meant to be on his own. Willem Dafoe is grab, grabs him from behind, and we get this shot. And this is like why I'm like, we should have seen his dick, where we see naked Willem Dafoe grabbing Pattinson, and there's a light coming out of his. Eyes, I think, or his forehead, yeah. or something, and this was like I looked, I saw this was like from a painting. I didn't know if like you had any research on that.
0: It looked a lot like the Jean Deville painting okay. to me, but that was like a Promethean painting. Although that would not mm-hmm. be the figure that William Defoe would be playing in this moment. It was kind of interesting. I was like, I- I've seen this image, but it's mm-hmm. it's the one that I would have associated a, with Robert Pattinson. So. Which uh, painting came to mind for you? Uh,
1: Well, I just, when I was like reading about the movie and like looking up its influences, like there was an article that talked about that.
0: Fair enough. Uh, So, yeah, this is going to culminate in Robert Pattinson finally snapping and turning the power dynamic tables on William Defoe. And he finds a book in which William Defoe has been taking notes that recommends Robert Pattinson get severance without pay because he's drunk all the time, he's (laughs) masturbating all the time, he sucks as an employee, he's not a hard worker, and Pattinson just finds this completely unfair. And from what we've seen up until now, at least from the Pattinson POV, it is a little unfair because he's been doing all the work and Defoe's just been masturbating in front of a light. And so... He goes a little, little crazy, snaps, and forces William Defoe to kind of crawl on the ground like a dog and bark for him and get in a shallow grave where he decides Uh-oh. he's going to bury him alive. Yeah. He doesn't double tap that situation, so no. by the time he gets back into the house, Defoe pops back up again.
1: You like me lobster now?
0: And Pattinson's just going to axe him. He's going to take a heavy axe like- and he's just going to axe to the skull. And one thing that I noticed here is when watching movies in which people shoot other individuals with guns, there's that mm-hmm. whole double tap rule, right? Where you're like, sure. double tap him, just to shoot him twice. But when he swings down that axe and <laughs> the chunks fly out of his skull, <laughs> there's you're, no like,
1: need to you're tap. like,
0: no, that, that just takes the, once. the, one, that no, was the one time we we'll All you
1: needed. Uh, I'll say that, like, leading up to this, like, when he has the foe in that hole, and is throwing dirt on him. That's, like, when I had it. Even, uh, even greater respect for Willem Dafoe, because he is legitimately laying in a dirt hole, and dirt is being thrown on top of him. At first, it's like it's just in his chest, but, like, the camera gets closer and closer as he is, like, kind of reciting some sort of poem or curse. At He's always cursing himself. As man. he does. And as we get closer on his face, dirt is just being thrown on Willem Dafoe's and he's face. He's chewing it? Yeah, he's chewing it like he's squint, like squinching his eyes closed because there's dirt, like just get into his eyes. And, oh my God, like Dafoe, props, man. That is not an easy thing to do. So good on him.
0: Yeah, I was kind of wondering if they maybe manufactured some dirt because there, there are certainly mm-hmm. ways to do that, especially for black and white film with like mm-hmm. kind of coffee grounds and things like that that might be yeah. a little bit more pleasant yeah to sort of chew
1: Who, yeah it could be that also like when he says this i know i took a note that uh he just mentions promethean plunder as he is being buried mm-hmm. which uh hmm, promethean reference to prometheus interesting <laughs> not
0: the first one yeah i know so... yeah
1: um it's the key yeah <laughs> and uh this is as we get towards the end here uh he has single taps him with the axe all, all he, he need,
0: need, all he, need. he needs
1: to do uh, he begins smoking and drinking kerosene again. I don't smoke. I don't drink kerosene. But if I did, I don't think I would do them together.
0: <laughs> Life choices. Life
1: choices. There you go. And he begins to crawl to the top of the lighthouse. Like, finally,
0: with his key that Defoe's kept on him at all times.
1: Yes, he has he- the key. Took it off of Defoe. Gets in. And, uh you want to take us? Uh, what happens in this last bit? Let's
0: see, so he walks finally into the light, and we see this gorgeous set for Mm. the first time and I can understand why he so badly wanted to get that gorgeous piece of glass that's happening but as he sort of ascends the the camera's going to do some interesting stuff with picking up sort of the shades of the blood that's sort of spilling down his Mm -hmm. face yeah
1: yeah, he is very blood covered now
0: it (laughs) is going to be one of the most amazing cool chilling moments that reminded me of watching like Unchian. Andalou or something like it was a very like surrealist piece of Uh cinema where he looks into the light and his face is gonna go through so many expressions. Also a little bit martyrs, like the French version of martyrs, where they're (laughs) sort of like looking into something and it's joy, it's ecstasy, it's horror, it's pain, it's all this stuff that's just happening through his face. Yeah. And he's gonna start laughing and crying and screaming. With his throat and his mouth Just stretched wide open Mm. But then the sound mixing that's gonna come out of it Is like something out of like an early David Lynch short Yeah,
1: as he's like screaming Like his screams It's like if you're recording something And you have the gain on whatever you're recording Turned up too much Then the sound begins to clip and gets distorted And that's like It sounds like that's what's happening with his voice In a deliberate way To where it's like and then they like kind
0: of yeah, kind of quieted it Mm -hmm. a little bit and like muffled it when they were sound mixing. So it's, it's a quiet sound. Yeah, And yeah, it's just, it's absolutely amazing.
1: What I found interesting about when he finally gets the top is that like, as he's crawling up and finally is in the top of it for the first time, we see that the light is rotating. and, And as he gets there, the light stops rotating. And then just that glass window into the, Actual light source just automatically opens up for him.
0: Yeah, it's very inviting. Yeah,
1: and uh, what I liked about my research on the, this final moment, when he reaches in, the directors never told him what was in there. Now, they never mm-hmm. gave a concrete answer. All they told him was, when you reach in, it's like you begin to have an orgasm, but it doesn't stop. Ever.
0: <laughs> Whoa.
1: And that makes sense, because there's this moment of ecstasy for him, but he gets there and, like, that high doesn't end. It just keeps going. And that's a terrifying sensation. So his reaction makes total sense when you think about that Fair direction. Enough,
0: yeah. The peak with nothing to relieve him. Mm-hmm. And so he gets pushed back from the light by some sort of. Force or his own trajectory, and he's just gonna fall completely mm-hmm. down these lighthouse steps.
1: It like it's almost comical the way just like do 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 do. Yeah,
0: do, do, I'm just do, like do, trying do, do, to imagine the, the stunt person trying yeah. to like roll oh. backwards down those stairs in a spiral and a respect. <laughs> and so he's going to land at the base of the lighthouse. And the next thing we get in a fade to white...
1: Is a Promethean fate.
0: Is a Promethean fate. He's just going to be spread out on the rocks. Another really beautiful compositional shot. Bloody shit on by seagulls. Because mm-hmm. there's that all over him too. Yeah. There's like white bears. There's the blood. <laughs> and these seabirds are just going to be pecking at his insides in the way that uh, Prometheus also was doomed to meet his end. Um, and it did almost look... Kind of almost a point-by-point remake uh, of some of the more well-known paintings of Prometheus Mm -hmm. as well. So it it had that kind of cool effect, although we can talk here very shortly about how he was sort of given all of this Promethean symbolism throughout the film, and yet is not really a Promethean figure, so... (laughs) So it's, it's a curious kind of choice.
1: Not a deliberate Promethean figure. If we think of Prometheus as one who deliberately goes and tries to get the fire of the gods and bring it back down for the good of humanity, then no, he is not at all a Promethean figure. This is all out of self-interest and he doesn't even know what the hell mm. it is.
0: But if it's just for that pursuit, mm. I guess there there's a kind of element there. And... Then we fade into a sea shanty, which was hurrah, sort of a
1: choice. let me go, let me go, let me go. And it's something like that. And like, I think
0: I saw an interview where Robert Pattinson mentioned that he went to a screening of, you know, the film. And he didn't realize how much people just love sea shanties because at the end, like the audience was sort of like clapping <laughs> to the sea shanties. It's a catchy song. And they're really you know? getting into it. I mean, yeah, everybody loves sea shanties. He's, he's not wrong. Although,
1: <laughs> it's a strange thing to be clapping to a sea shanty at the end of this movie. <laughs> I mean,
0: it is isn't. it isn't at the same time, though, because this is like a bizarre, dark, surrealist comedy in its own way as well. And yet part of me is delighted that there is a sea shanty at the end. The other part was a little disappointed that they didn't use the song I Want to Marry a Lighthouse Keeper because I thought that that would be (laughs) an extra fun thing to just fade into for some reason. Like, that's where I really wanted the film to go. But other than that, so I guess that's my one critique of the film is that they didn't end it (laughs) with I Want to Marry a Lighthouse Keeper.
1: We talk about plot, but there's so much more to talk about here. We got to talk about the look of this film, you know, from the very start of this movie. when I, I think when I was watching it, I texted you and I said, this is more square than it should be.
0: And I think you actually texted me with the actual aspect ratios. Oh,
1: did I? Yeah, you know, okay. you're like,
0: this looks like a one nineteen one or whatever, it was. <laughs> and you texted in a confused way. And I had already read a little bit about the camera work on this. I was like, God damn it! It's <laughs> like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it is. It
1: reminded me of the Passion of Joan uh, Joan Arc, which was a 1920 two I want to say silent film that had that aspect ratio. Most early silent films uh, they were going for that and that is the look that apparently Robert Eggers was trying to create with this stuff. you know when we were researching this we kind of said, okay Ben, you do the you do the technical stuff I'm gonna handle the folklore stuff but yeah, yeah. I will say like what's interesting is I in a way in some ways I feel like the technical aspects and the folklore aspects of this movie kind of begin to blend together at a certain point. Be- I'll
0: agree with that. Yeah,
1: and here's why I say that: if we assume that this movie is meant to take place in the 1890s, and I feel like I read that somewhere, yeah, I think you're the right. late 1800s, the lenses and film stock used in this film are closer to the time period of the film than those technical aspects are to us today, because Robert Eggers used he used lenses. I think, as we said, from the stone ages of cinema, there are lenses used in this movie that were like made in the early 1900s. Not like 1930s or whatever, not like 1910 or so. And then some other lenses made in the 1930s. He did not use anything made past 1955. The film stock he used to get really technical was this film stock called Kodak, Kodak Tri-X 5222. This is a film stock that was introduced and has remained unchanged since, I believe, when did it come out? 1959. So this is an incredibly old look, like old black and white film to use. Not only that, not only is he using these super old lenses, a very old style of black and white film stock, but he's recreating a look that he refers to as orthochromatic. Now, this is where I... Okay, I'm really going to dive in here. <laughs> Deep dive. But it is relevant to how this film is being made. Early silent film, early silent black and white film, could actually not pick up all the colors of the visible human spectrum. If you were to look at a graph of, uh, of like the colors of like the rainbow, red is towards the end of the spectrum, and then after that you get into infrared light. But early black and white film... If you painted something red and photographed it, the red would just look black. And so the effect that this tended to have on the human face was to make you look even more haggard, unless you were, like, just caking on lots and lots of reflective makeup and people were flooding you. So that actually lends into why Robert Pattinson and Defoe look as haggard and grisly as they do because the red tones in their fle- like in their flesh tones are kind of darker than they normally would be
0: okay that makes a lot of sense because that was sort of a feedback from both myself and the other people that were in the room both times i was watching it really like, wow they really look haggard they really look like they have spent some time at the sea and these are some pretty well-preserved actors otherwise yeah. <laughs> so, I like, how, how did robert pattinson get that grizzled so fast but um, i didn't know about the monochromatic that's really cool
1: that yeah is just an unbelievably fascinating thing to me they're trying to recreate this like look from a time gone by a film that's why we say this is a cruel motherfucking film to anyone who is not used to this sort of thing i mean that casual audience does probably not give a shit that early silent film couldn't pick up the wavelengths of 625 nanometers to 750 nanometers. That's probably not on the they minds. They should, though. They should, but you know what? The world's a cruel place, and it's not. So, they're not thinking about that. I'm thinking about that. That's why this film is so amazing to me. But the average audience member doesn't really care, and they're going to wonder... What the fuck? Why? Why is my beautiful vampire, my beautiful sexy vampire, looking so bad in this he movie? He aged. He
0: aged fast. And he <laughs> aged hard. So is is that the same kind of principle behind what's happening at the end when he looks into the light and so much of his sort of face and the blood on his face almost turns the whole thing pretty much kind of black? Yeah. Or are there some other components there that are kind of creating? extra shading i
1: think with his face like that is what it, that's part that's the main thing there is that no matter what they do i've read about like the special they bring in specialized filters for this that could specifically block that wavelength of film and also kind of boosted blue lights this is also an interesting thing from silent film blue light often registered at just as white on film Often, like, and sometimes directors would use this to their advantage. If you watch, uh, a good example is Metropolis, the Fritz Lang film from 1927. The foreman in that film, he had blue eyes, and the, if you put enough light on that, the irises completely wash out, so it looks like it's just, like, whites of eyes and pupils, and that's all that your awesome. eyes are, and it's fucking terrifying if you do it the right way. Yeah. So, yeah, blue eyes, man. Freaky just the true horror good God, of our time to see them
0: so we okay, so have these, <laughs> i do my, it's my horrifying eyes. so we have this interplay of color on camera
1: yes we have that um not only that interplay of the color and also the film stock being used as you may have guessed by now this film was not a digital affair this was filmed on celluloid film uh the exposure was ridiculous for this from what i could see in film, exposure, like the sensitive, sensitivity of film, is often measured in something called ISO or ASA. It refers to how sensitive a film is. So, if you had film in your camera and you went outside, you would want film that was about 100 ASA. That's, like, good for outdoor exposure. If you were going inside, you would want something that was, like, listed as 500 or 1,000 ASA. It's a much more sensitive film. The film that they were using in this, like, because of the film and because of the filters they were using to create that orthochromatic look... The exposure to this was something along the lines of 80 to 50 ASA. So light that's so not sensitive, or film that is so not sensitive to light, sunlight would look dim. So what that led to was a unbelievably bright amount of light that was on the set to this. And this film looks like it's dark, but on Mm -hmm. the set, when they're filming it, there are interviews where Pattinson and Defoe are like, we were nearly blinded. Because there was so much light on our faces to, like, get these looks. And, yeah. So, insane amount out there, uh, the one, two, two, the one, what did I say? Like, I think officially it is, like, one point, or, like, one, one nine aspect ratio. So, like, almost square. They want to get that look because it evoked silent film, which, again, evoking a look that is closer to the time of this film than it is to today. But because of that, they did specially make all the sets to accommodate that. Making like dinner tables, you know, shorter than like uh, with less width than they would be, so that Pattinson and Defoe could be closer together. Because you don't have much width of the screen to get both them into it. Um, the sets themselves were made; the rooms were built to accommodate that. The lighthouse itself, its design was considered, like, was being taken into account. Actually, I think they realized they knew they could make the lighthouse taller than it would have been originally had they just mm-hmm. gone widescreen because. It's a it is a taller frame than you would normally have. Uh, let's see I'm trying to think what else I have here on technical aspects because there is there's just so much so much on that and like uh what was it? The lenses were like called Lomb Lombalter lenses, which were nothing in that line was made past
0: nineteen fifty six.
1: Yeah, you've heard that name? Of course I mean, you've heard that name. Well
0: so Rochester initially. Um Spent yeah. spent a lot of time there in, uh, uh, in my youth, where Kodak and Bausch and Lomb okay. and, and things worse. So mm-hmm. lots of lots of early camera part exposures. This
1: so. is uh, this is all very true, uh, but yeah, that's like uh, those are the main thing. Like things about the just the look of the film is a very deliberate choice by the filmmaker, and a, so much went into creating the look of the film that we get. I don't know if anything was lost in the you know transfer from film to digital to create this. Um, maybe seeing this on the silver screen is a, a different experience altogether. Who knows?
0: I did notice that there was a stark difference, even just the first time I watched it. I saw the sort of HD legally purchased okay. version, and there were some really rich blacks, and there were some really great kind of silver whites. And then the, the second time that I watched it the other night, it was a pirated downloaded version mm-hmm. just because I had forgotten my computer with the actual purchase version on it. Right on. So I asked a friend, of mine like, can, can you just download this real quick for me because I, I need to check something. And it, uh, it was a little bit grayer sort mm. of overall. So it was not as high quality of an image and you could still sort of tell the beauty of the film, but this is one of those films that you really do want to see in the best copy yeah. possibly available to you because I, something does kind of take away from it a little bit when those sort of contrasts are lost.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, this is a movie that when this much attention is given to the visual you know, impact, not that, I mean, all films have attention to the visual impact that they're supposed to have, you're not a very good filmmaker if you're you're not a very good filmmaker if you're just completely ignoring that you know like yeah the camera should probably be on you should have lights on yeah but on the
0: flip side there are some not so great filmmakers so yeah,
1: yeah like a recent film that i've been seeing reviews for is tyler perry's most recent film uh fall from grace and everyone that talks about that film is like every scene of this is just flat blocking it's just camera pointed at a wall or the side of a room and people look at each other in profile to the camera and they talk and that's it. There's nothing more to it. So that, no, it doesn't really matter what you watch that on. That could be a shitty VHS copy that you somehow Get of a new movie.
0: Ah, oh, that might add something to it, actually, just it, for like retro nostalgia stay. For right? sure, just, for sure, yeah. If you're gonna have poor cinematography, like go retro.
1: <laughs> right <laughs> so on. So we
0: learned from all the found footage horror movies of the early 2000s.
1: Oh, good lord, yeah. I mean, found footage it does you a lot of uh, does a lot to cover up the flaws of your movie, especially if you're something like August Underground which I'm sure we'll talk about one day, Uh. there's like a found footage movie and like it's just gory effects and like because it's found footage, the graininess and like VHS, you know, distortion do a lot to hide how crappy the effects probably
0: are. So does the mythos of the August Underground films because I feel like it has more of a presence as this sort of urban legend, but not urban legend because they actually are films (laughs) out there on the internet, especially in the early days of the internet. I remember that circulating have you seen august underground stuff it's the most hardcore thing you can find right and so everybody and yeah. it wasn't that easy to find because they're not mm. that great so they're not that accessible because they didn't have high sort of production values or distribution and then you find them mm. after all the build up and you're mm. like oh this is this is whatever awesome. so build ups of myths and then disappointment when you find out uh, what actually lies behind it uh, might be a, a segue into some of the mythos here mm-hmm. in this film. We'll
1: say that we, is not the case with this is film. It's not the case with oh, this no. film.
0: It might be the case with some of the things that it's based on, if we were to ever find out the true answers of what happened. Right. Um, but since we don't have some of those answers, mm-hmm. there there's some mystery that remains behind the the sort of stories that this is based on.
1: So I'll, can yeah. I just like give like the few things I think I heard about the. This film about the about the inspiration pie, and then you can go. I mean,
0: sure, and then I can tell you you're wrong.
1: Yeah, exactly. Layman's point of view. view So our usual report, pedantic experts' point of view. (laughs) So, like, what I've just heard is that, like, it is based on an incident from New England or Nova Scotia, where there are two guys who were both named Thomas on a lighthouse. Uh, One of them, I believe, died, and the other one went crazy. Uh, I think there are some interviews. Where Robert Eggers said they were trying to develop and uh, in- reinterpret uh, an, un- an incomplete Edgar Allan Poe story, uh, just called "The Lighthouse," which the film doesn't have any actual resemblance to. And yeah, that's about uh, that's about it. That's all that I know.
0: All right, so take me away. The thing that is really interesting is that there was a historical moment in which two dudes named Thomas were keeping a lighthouse together, and. That to me is one of the most surprising things about the little asterisks, kind of based on a true story, <laughs> is that this dual name thing is an accurate sort of actual thing. Since usually when two names are given to our two main characters that are the same, it is this sort of identity exploration. It's supposed to be purposely uncanny or weird and ask, are these the same person then? Or you know, it kind of invokes all of these cinematic questions. But then you find out in history, there actually were just two dudes named Thomas. (laughs) So it kind of also creates what'll sort of be a lot of the things in the lighthouse where there is a supernatural or an uncanny, abject horror type of interpretation. And then there's just the mundane interpretation. And in this case, the mundane interpretation is there were two dudes named Thomas in a lighthouse. And these two apparently hated each other oh, in real life okay. as well and i believe even though this film was shot in nova scotia that the lighthouse two thomases it happened in 1801 and i believe it was more in the wales sort of area oh, okay. um, than sort of the canadian one
1: leave it to the welsh
0: um yeah they hated each other they mm-hmm. argued all the time and one of the Thomases during one lighthouse keeping season died by some sort of I think the later rulings were kind of like a disease or sort of like a freak accident or something Mm. as far as I can tell Thomas number two is not generally credited with actually killing this guy but Thomas number two was pretty sure he was going to be credited with killing this guy because they hated each other they had Mm. a known animosity and so he decided that he needed to kind of hold on to the body rather than just if he threw it out to sea, then there would really be those questions of, did you push him out? Mm. So he built a coffin for this guy and then a storm came and the storm just sort of washed out the coffin, banged it against some stuff. And accounts are kind of murky on exactly what the physicality of this next part really is. But somehow he ended up getting kind of tangled in some sort of mast flagpole, like, deck observation thing okay. on the island. Wow. And he was kind of stuck there. And his arm was caught in a way where it looked like it was waving. And so... What? <laughs> at some he point... beckons
1: to us! Sounds like something from Moby Dick. Yeah, so we've got <laughs>
0: this, like, waving corpse on an, on an island, on this lighthouse... And Thomas number two is like, holy fuck, okay, I'm, I'm in a little duress. Mm-hmm. Let's raise the distress flag so when, mm. you know, the, the ships come uh, to relieve us, they, they know something's up and something's wrong from afar, except for, and then this part, I don't know if it's an embellishment of, of the legend or this actually happened, but the, the sources that I found said that at one point a ship came to sort of investigate... Closer, the distress flag. But then they also saw a guy that was just sort of, you know, standing up there waving, and figured, I can't be that distressful of a situation because oh, this is pleasant. No. And so they did not stop. And Thomas Number Two good ended God. up stuck for several weeks. Oh, good God! With the corpse of his lighthouse overkeeper friends. Oh and could see his arm just kind of like waving from the window and i guess this guy was severely psychologically traumatized by this event you know what i'm saying and was a radically different person when he got back to the mainland yeah and yes yeah, so there's that kind of just like the weird shit uh that it that happened there in 1801 yeah the two thomases health, mental
1: health wasn't uh very big back then, yeah, so he, I can only imagine what his life
0: was like after this. Yeah, he continued to do his lighthouse-keeping duties while the corpse of his not-so-friend, uh, sort of, yeah, um, waved to him from from the window. The other sort of lighthouse story that people also often kind of talk about with this one was something that happened on Flannan Isle, and that's off of Scotland, I believe, and this is the nineteen. 19- 01, so we've got kind of an 1801, and then sort of a 1900, in 1901. Austin. So it's kind of the tail end okay. of the the 19th century in, in lighthouse keeping, and this one is a little bit more of a sort of Roanoke Colony type of tale, mm. and so we've got these three guys that okay. oh, and also these Thomases, they actually had an impact on how sort of United Kingdom lighthouse keeping was done after that because instead of you having were, only two people, you had three ever since know, that some event. change was brought about um, so, because of this. Yeah, they were like, well, maybe we should have three people on mm-hmm. there just in case one dies and ends up sort of tied to the mast and waving at his, his <laughs> crewmates. There
1: just one? I'm uh, <laughs> not sure when lighthouses were a new thing, like, oh, this one guy can do that. Just one is fine.
0: Know? I think I don't know, because it seems like there are tales in which one guy is sort of manning a lighthouse but i do think you need you need to sleep at some point yeah. right so i'm i'm thinking that there were probably always the sort of tendency to put people who could have shifts the, the sure. day and night shift okay. but yeah so there were these three guys and a ship came to to relieve these three men and something was a little weird because the the cases were sort of all out for the sort of refill of supplies and whatnot, mm-hmm. but the men weren't there. And so they docked and they went to go look around and nothing seemed disturbed on this island. They went inside, still just no no sign of these men. The house itself was still in good order. All of the dishes had been clean and put away. So they're mm-hmm. thinking, okay, these guys had dinner. They packed some stuff back up. I I believe the one weird thing was that there was a chair in the kitchen that had been tipped over and left tipped over, and a couple of the oilskins were gone in a way that made it look like one guy might have purposely gone outside. But then other people's coats were kind of on the racks and Mm -hmm. things, and they were just never able to find any trace of where these men went did not look like there was a sign of a struggle. Apparently on one side of the island, it looked like there might have been a storm. So there are theories that perhaps two of them were trying to secure something and got washed out to sea and the other one's leaving his coat behind to just run out to help them, right? There there are mundane, plausible explanations here. Mm -hmm. Some people theorize that one of them sort of snapped and went crazy and killed the others and threw them into sea and then committed suicide. There's all sorts of theories, right? But there's actually no answers as to what Mm -hmm. happened to these guys. And so there are a lot of ballads that were written about this afterwards, sort of legends and folklore that kind of got inspired by, you know, what is sort of the Roanoke colony edition of these three lighthouse keepers in Scotland that just vanished one day and nobody knows where they went. And so we have with the lighthouse kind of a combination of these tales, the two Thomases that just get through a series of escalating unfortunate events Also combined with this idea that sometimes, from an outside perspective, weird shit might go down on an island, and these men might disappear, and we might never know what happened to them, and maybe it's mundane, or maybe seagulls came and (laughs) sort of consumed their corpses (laughs) because one of them was actually an evil of Graftian, Neptunian god that had provoked him into slaying him. I don't know. So... As far as then the myths go, a little bit more of this, this actual folklore, we, we've got a lot, of, a lot of possible folklore here that's going on. So on the mundane front, as we mm-hmm. mentioned, right, these might be some just dehydrated motherfuckers mm-hmm. that are going progressively delirious mm-hmm. with lack of, of H2O, but also lack of stimulus, maybe because of isolation. The sea is a cruel place.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Um, other cool. possibilities, as you mentioned, right, Prometheus is mentioned a few times. And so we have this possible idea of Robert Pattinson's character as a Promethean figure who in the more classic Greco-Roman mythology, he, he takes on a couple of different ways um, mm-hmm. that he's portrayed. Often now he's the sort of pursuer of knowledge. He's going for that fire to sort of steal it from the gods, maybe give it to man. In the very, very initial introduction that we still have remaining to Prometheus, I think it's in Hesiod's theology in the eighth century, and that's a little less selfless. So it mm. seems like, if anything, if he's a Promethean figure, he's a little bit more sort of the, the theology, like Hesiod one, where he's kind of doing it also to sort of fuck Zeus over a little bit right. because yeah. Zeus was a miserable old bastard. Kind of like Defoe. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who's holding on to all of the knowledge mm-hmm. is like, dude, this this shit's not gonna fly. Mm-hmm. Right? We need I need to know. I'm gonna steal this fire from you. Zeus gets really pissed about this. And so as a punishment, he has him eternally strung up on the rocks so that gulls can eternally pick at his liver, specifically his liver, but also his internal organs in later sort of additions. And I think later myth cycles that Hercules might actually save Prometheus at some point and kind mm-hmm. of let him go. But he's there for a while. We also have Proteus is is mentioned um, or referenced to, and this is with William Defoe's character. Proteus is a sea god back in uh, the the Greco-Roman days. He is the keeper of the sea, and what's interesting about him is that he knew all things, past, present, and future. But he hated sharing his knowledge with people. Oh. So, kind of Defoe-ish, mm-hmm. right? Where we have this guy who's like, no, I, I know lots, mm-hmm. but my lights.
1: It does make sense because there are times in this movie where Defoe, almost the modern term for it would be gaslighting Pattinson. <laughs> yeah. Where he's like, you've, you know, we've been here for months now. like, what? N- n- no, no, we've only been here for like a few days over four weeks. No. We've been here for months, and every day you keep saying you've only been here for a few days of our four weeks.
0: Yeah, and at some <laughs> point, when Defoe runs out and starts hacking up the lifeboat yeah, that just, it seems like Robert Pattinson's trying to bring out to sea.
1: Yeah, get, just get away from it. Like, get away. Somehow, no matter how, you know, foolish an attempt that might be, he tries to take that boat out to sea. Yeah, and <laughs> Defoe's words are... Don't you leave me!
0: Don't you leave me! But then we get back into the room afterwards, and he's talking like Robert Pattinson had hacked up the boat. Yeah. He's like, you're going crazy. You hacked up our lifeboat. It's yeah. like, whoa, gaslighting? Like, what's gets, happening here?
1: Gets the knife away. Like, one takes the knife, uh, this knife away from Pattinson, and then, like, breaks it and says, oh, It was complete property. I'll duck it from your wages. You're like, <laughs> It's a fucking knife, dude.
0: Dick move. Dick move. (laughs) Well, he also, like, snaps the knife and then puts it into the furnace, like, right next to them. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'll keep it from him. Like, show him right where you put it. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, that, that was an odd choice. But yeah, he seems to... But once again, we don't know if maybe... William Defoe is telling the truth. Maybe he's not gaslighting at all. Maybe they have been there for months. Maybe Robert Pattinson did ha- hack up the lifeboat, but we're seeing from Pattinson's unreliable narrator point of view that these things are being done to him. We just we don't have enough stability to kind of tell one way or the other. Although I think there's kind of a tendency, or at least for me, to side with Pattinson just because he is in this narrative the more likable, empathetic figure. Since mm-hmm. we've got our, our Proteus Defoe, mm-hmm. who's just kind of a total ass and gross <laughs> the entire time through. So I, I'm willing to allow maybe uh, some suspension of disbelief for, for poor Pattinson here. Mm-hmm. That maybe this guy is gaslighting him like nobody's business. But another thing that's kind of cool with the, the Proteus myth is that since he is a sort of prophetic figure that he knows the future and he knows mm-hmm. the past, and he knows the present. And doesn't want to share his knowledge. One of the few ways to try to trap him and get him to share his knowledge is to catch him during his noonday slumber. Um, It's a little line from some of the myths. So if you catch him at noon or you trap him at noon while he's sleeping. And this is something that Pattinson is going to try to do with Proteus is when um, we have Defoe doing the night shift, he sleeps during the day. And at some point Pattinson goes and he tries to get that key from him mm-hmm. while he's in his noonday slumber. Yeah. But Proteus just kind of pops up, yeah. wakes up.
1: Defoe just looks and like, tend to your duties. <sighs> and he snores so disgustingly, too. Yeah,
0: he doesn't seem to uh-huh. really question the fact that he wakes up and Pattinson is just sort of right there in yeah. his face, curled On over.
1: top of him, like, he has one hand behind his back. <laughs> Like, um, hi, what you doing there? Right above me. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> nope, not, not a care in the world. Just rolls over and tells him that he should probably get some sleep too, because their next shift is coming very, very soon. Um, so, yeah, the Proteus and Prometheus kind of thing pit against each other. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, these are not two mythological figures that have a tendency to be paired together Mm. in myth, if ever. I Mm. could not find a a previous sort of thing in which they were in the same story. Mm. And so it seems like this is a choice of Robert Eggers to sort of combine them. And that actually is kind of on par with the way that a lot of these Greek myths were produced, is that you would have new writers, new sort of storytellers that would come along even Mm. in that time period. And they would take these figures and they would stuff them into different myths and they would sort of create stories and they would sort Mm. of pick and choose their characters. So the fact that he's just like, yeah, let's pick these two and explore a myth with them, that's right on par. That's totally cool. He's just becoming part of this sort of larger tradition of Greek mythology. As far as the little mini folklore that goes in here, Mm -hmm. we've got... We've got a lot of folklore, right? Sure. sure. Everything's bad luck. Mm. I don't know what. What can you remember that is bad luck? What but did you learn from this film about
1: bad luck? Bad to, luck to and to sailors not return a toast. You gotta return a toast. That's true. And if you try to do it with water, that's bad. That's bad too. Uh, that's not good. Um, I you know recall it being bad luck to kill a seabird.
0: Also very that, true. That's
1: not good. Uh, Defoe explains explicitly that to him seabirds contain the souls of those the sea has taken. Yes. Um, Which we kind of, the movie goes very literally with that in that Joe Pattinson at one point finds a head of someone that only had one eye. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's
1: like, well, one either the sea took him or someone else took him. Probably someone else because the sea isn't really known for decapitating people in a very clean cut like this head is.
0: Yeah, Pattinson becomes kind of convinced that maybe defoe killed his last wiki his mm. last one-eyed wiki and yeah. threw him in the sea and then his head got trapped in this lobster trap but yes yeah, so a bad luck to kill a seabird something i'm sure mermaids aren't very good luck yeah mermaids i mean they, they can bring you some good luck they can mm. also bring you some downfalls mm-hmm. so sailors and mariners are one of the still to this day the number one superstitious profession they mm. share that title with baseball players mm-hmm. actually yeah. so it's it's mariners and baseball players are our right. two most sort of superstitious fellows but the, the mariners have been around longer overall and so we have a much richer longer history of folklore and superstition amongst mariner culture most of that is that everything's bad luck mm-hmm. pretty much anything you do yeah is just bad luck in sailing and
1: I think if you work in such a dangerous environment, yeah, about anything is bad luck to you.
0: Yeah, this is this is super bad luck. And another sort of really interesting statistic, it is the number two mortality rates professionally mm. behind loggers. I was
1: gonna say, yeah, logging's probably going to be number one. So
0: and, and that <laughs> is relevant to this film, right? Because Pattinson was a logger. People died logging and then he he came to the number two most dangerous (laughs) profession and he died there. So we've got deaths all around in these.
1: Guy's life is bad luck. My God. Yeah,
0: so he's not picking really great jobs statistically for his survival rates. So, you know, like Robert Pattinson was asking for it is Mm. really the takeaway here. But in terms of these sailor superstitions that we get throughout here. All of them are very accurate um, in terms of bad luck of toasting the bird, sort of bad luck stuff. Mm-hmm. It often is albatrosses specifically that we oh. get in mariner culture, and mm-hmm. that of course comes from Coleridge's rhyme of the ancient mariner. That's where we get that story mm-hmm. of the albatross around the neck that okay. somebody in that story kills an albatross and mm-hmm. then is forced to wear it around his neck um, as this oh. sort of sign that. He Lord. transgressed because yeah, you, you don't kill kill those birds. And we have the doldrums are worse than the devil something that the foe is gonna say at mm-hmm. one point. So being bored, being idle is worse almost because then you have the timed look around and the isolation and the madness, right, might start setting in. It's the old saying,
1: idle hands do the devil's work, apparently. Yes. And, God, what a horrible thing to, like, be the rule that being bored is worse than devilry. Like, (laughs) what choice do you have? You're going to be bored. You're on a small island with nothing to do. And I think Defoe points out that his log is the only book on the island, if I recall. Like, I think (laughs) the manual... And his logbook. That's the only thing you could read. And Pattinson's not even allowed to read the logbook.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there's not a whole lot of stimulation here. It's just really some, like, back-breaking work and masturbation to, like, mermaid statues. It's really the two things that, <sighs>
1: yeah, that yeah. Pattinson
0: has to do throughout all of this.
1: Nowadays, we have the internet and in masturbation, so it's you know, better these days. Exactly. Thank
0: God. Uh, we just look up pictures of mermaids. But... <laughs> Um, a couple of these sailor superstitions that did not make it into this, but that I do sort of adore and love. Mm. One makes total sense that it's not in this movie because it's the idea of a red sky at morning being a, a warning sign of an impending oh. storm. Okay, well, this is yeah. a black and white film that apparently doesn't even pick up red on camera. <laughs> so maybe maybe we just don't go with that. Yeah. But another one um, are tattoos in sailor culture. Hmm. So
1: yeah. you don't see any tattoos here. Or-
0: uh, we do kind of see a scarification tattoo on William Defoe's chest. Oh, he has okay. a ship scarred oh, onto right. his chest. Yeah. And that that's going to be really interesting, too. But one of my my sort of favorite superstition traditions in sailing is to tattoo themselves with pictures of pigs or hens, mm-hmm. sometimes on the feet. This is sort of further back, as it were. And the idea was that since pigs and hens were often transported on these boats... And were not creatures of the sea, and they couldn't swim. That the gods might look down upon, you know, these animals and feel bad and spare them Uh if they fall into the sea. And so, tattooing uh, those animals on your body was also a signpost to say, Mm -hmm. like, kind of, hey, spare me. I'm 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 a poor non sea creature, as it were. But also why this is fun is because often these animals that were being transported in wooden crates, if there was a shipwreck, would often end up floating on the sea. And so livestock transport were some of sometimes... The few survivors of a shipwreck, because they would just be sort of floating around. And so when people went to go kind of rescue ship, they would they would rescue all the pigs and chickens that were just kind of floating um, in their little crates. and so that that also helped develop the superstition that if you're gonna live through a shipwreck, you're gonna be a pig or, mm-hmm. or a hen um, that was sure. part of the cargo. but we we don't see any pig or hen tattoos in this, but we do see
1: the sham the luck.
0: The other just a couple of little things, of course, we got the siren. Or the mermaid, the undine, right? Mm. We have this this creature that's kind of a, a combination. She screeches like a siren. She mm. looks like a Victorian mermaid. Mm. She sort of takes on the sexual role of an undine. So she's got a couple of things mm. going for her. We get the the mermaid vagina. Cool boy, do we. Which is awesome, oh but God. also like what? <laughs> um, I've often wondered, you know, looking at the the Victorian mermaid, like, well, how how in the world is a sailor supposed to have sex with this? Right. right? And that's kind of the idea of the Victorian mermaid of closing those legs up into one single tail is mm. to sort of take away the sexuality. Of these creatures, which might, if you think about it too long, be weird if you're only familiar with the single-tailed mermaid, and you're sort of thinking, well, there's these women that are supposed to tempt sailors away, Mm -hmm. right, that are maybe going crazy, maybe going stir-crazy, maybe there are actual kind of mermaid creatures out there, I don't know, but...
1: it's a manifestation all you can offer is like you get to second base with these things and that's all you can do
0: yeah and this is folklore (laughs) of sailors if anybody spent any time around sailors even modern day sailors like navy men and stuff this is a a profane group of horny motherfuckers generally like (laughs) there is no way that sailors creating their own folklore Mm -hmm. are going to create creatures that they can't fuck if they're talking about (laughs) fucking them right they're not going to like chase in the mermaid by saying yeah i mean she has a tail the tail's so hot there's nothing to have sex with it's like no traditional sailor lore like there was plenty of stuff to have sex Uh, with um it always
1: reminds me of a, a gag in futurama where the fry ends up in the lost city of Atlanta, because in the year three thousand, the city of Atlanta is like Atlantis. Basically, he meets a sexy mermaid. He's like, "I'm gonna stay down here. I'm gonna marry her." Like, okay, great. So he stays there, and they're having their wedding night. And he hops into bed. He's like, uh, "Wait, how? Wait, how do I with the tail and the mermaid? Uh, coincidentally, vo- voiced by Brittany Murphy, you know, rest in peace." She's like, "Oh, wait. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm not your first, am I? I mean." I I I lay my eggs and I leave and then you do your thing. That's how it works, right? And the next shot is just him running away and he screams, Why couldn't she be the other kind of mermaid with the fish part on
0: top and the human part on the bottom? Oh uh, yeah, that's sexy too. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> you can have sex with it, I mean
0: You can. I mean you can also have sex with the mermaids, yep. um, apparently, because we get this really nice close up shot just for a second mm. of just this I mean, there are layers and mermaid layers labia. and layers to that labia, like worlds upon They're worlds. There
1: are like, boy, labia. there's like labia majora, there's labia majoris level two, labia <laughs> menorah, labia <laughs> subminora, labia, labia ultra majora. I mean, good lord, it's really awesome. <laughs> I, I
0: was really excited that someone finally showed me a believable mermaid vagina, although also sort of pop culture mermaid tail split. Starbucks, <laughs> a couple. I've heard about
1: this years yeah, okay, ago. Yeah.
0: re released their quote-unquote original design, and I mm. don't know to what extent this was ever used as an original design and for mm. how long. But the claimed original design on these sort of re-release cups were the mermaids with the split tails. Yeah. So I'm like, hey, Starbucks, like you were, I
1: think exposed breasts.
0: You were you were way more sexual back yeah. in the day, and uh, so that was kind of that was fun because I. I have one of the mugs that were sort of released from that because my mother got it for um, me. Because she saw it and she's yeah. like, I figured you had to have this. And mm. I was like, I love my mother. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she she saw the the hypersexual mermaid and thought of me, which is why my mom was great. So we have these sirens. And something that becomes interesting, too, for what the different theories of what's going on in this movie are... There are three classes of sirens in Greek mythology, Uh and they are the celestial, and the celestial sirens are overseen by Zeus. They actually are generally more Mm bird-human-like than they are mermaid or fish-human-like, but we could maybe combine this idea with Mm -hmm. sort of sea culture with the Mm -hmm. seagulls. And the Sirens, are these all one and the same Mm -hmm. kind of sort of figures? Are they coming from both the air and the sea? The generative are overseen by Poseidon. And then there are the third sort of tier, which are the cathartic or the purative. Mm -hmm. And they are overseen by sort of Hades in the underworld. And their purpose is to conform a soul to an infernal regime. So depending on which sort of class of Siren you're interacting with, they're, they're going to be different. They're going to serve different purposes. Now, in terms of what the hell is going on here with some of these different people mm-hmm. and these different myths, there are multiple interpretations. We, mm-hmm. we covered the dehydration one. Sure. And then, of course, there's the opposite spectrum of willing to foe's a god. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Not saying he's a god, but he's a god kind of thing. <laughs> And he's a god of the sort of Neptunian, Poseidon, Proteus variety. Okay, okay. We get this supported a little bit where when uh, Pattinson is trying to kill him and he's strangling him and he, this body is just going to go through a bunch of transformations. And at one point he's going to turn into a very classic looking Neptunian representation of Defoe oh, with yeah. kind of seashells affixed to him mm-hmm. and sort of little horns. And yeah. he, he just looks kind of like a yeah, a sea god. We also kind of get a sense that he might have the divine relationship with the sea and the tentacles Mm. by all of whatever he gets up to in the light. Once again, whether he's transforming into that kraken, if he is just summoning it to Mm. have some sexy good times with it. But he seems to be able to talk to the light and knows it personally. He seems to overkeep this island that... Perhaps why Robert Pattinson meets the fate he does is because he is a wiki that has come there and does not respect the rules of the sea. He keeps mm-hmm. violating all the shit. It's like horror movie 101, right? He's transgressing. He he stops at that gas station and he fills his car up anyway and he goes past the harbinger and then he like touches the shit he's not supposed to. So I mean he's gonna just keep violating shit. He's not gonna toast, he's gonna kill a seabird, he's um gonna gonna masturbate in places he shouldn't. So overall, he he's not respecting the sea. So maybe the last wiki didn't either. And Defoe's like, the the shit needs to be stopped. I need a wiki that's gonna replace me, that's gonna respect mm-hmm. the the ways of the water world. Of course. The water world, yes. Other interpretations in a sort of like J.J. Abrams lost sort of way. But oh, boy.
1: This,
0: this is purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never
1: finished Lost. Did it actually turn out to be purgatory?
0: Okay, so spoilers for Lost. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you don't know him by now, yeah, Lost turned out to be purgatory. I believe I didn't stay stuck it with Lost the entire me. way out.
1: When that show first started, they explicitly said it was not purgatory. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, like you're not alone in that feeling of oh, betrayal. But good uh,
1: Lord, I'm so glad I stopped watching that show.
0: Yeah, it was kind of it was purgatory. It was like sort of a waiting, holding ground. Um, And that seems to be an interpretation, a possible interpretation here as well that some people have that this is an underworld situation or purgatory. So he's either awaiting some kind of judgment and he's stuck in this cycle on an island Mm -hmm. sort of being judged for his previous crimes where if he killed the real Ephraim Winslow or just witnessed it, but he didn't help and he didn't interfere then maybe that's kind of a, no, well, what kind of offense is this, right? Like, well, let's put you on this purgatory island and sort of figure it out. Or he might have already been condemned to some sort of Dante Inferno level of something where he is just having to suffer this weird fever dream over and over again where he's confronted with the things that he's done. This is not my favorite interpretation personally, but it's, it's there, it's out there one that people have i feel like it just almost has a little bit to 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 bring back the themes of oh i'm disappointed by by the benji christianity is really just that i I don't think we need to have a judeo-christian lens on sort of all media that like Mm. this seems to be taking from something a little bit more sort of greco-roman in origin and also a little bit more lovecraftian right something Mm. with like god's plural and Mm a weirder world than sort of the the simplicity of the hell judgment kind of mythos not that that can't be done and can't be done well i just think that there's something more complex going on here mm. with a wider variety of folklore and myth than just that kind of simplification although if that is your interpretation then i'm i'm an asshole and just just don't worry about
1: it. <laughs> she is an asshole though <laughs> I, I am <laughs> i can't no be questioning that
0: so what what is your interpretation of this
1: <laughs> oh um uh that you know it's it's important to follow the rules you know you should follow that rule book had they had they just followed that rule book and not gone to drinking i don't think this would have happened so
0: no transgressions i
1: th- like no trans yeah would have gone better for them
0: uh. Are, are you a guy to generally follow all the rules, Benji? Of course not. No. <laughs> so you're saying you would not survive on this island? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> so, I'm not, I'm
1: not signing up for that. I am not buying that ticket. I am not taking that ride.
0: So, fuck that. So how reliable do you think that Robert Pattinson is?
1: As a narrator? Yeah. Mm, not very. <laughs>
0: like, to what extent mm. is this supernatural and to what extent is this mundane uh,
1: for you? If I feel like... <laughs> I would say a very very little of it is, is real. Okay. I think like we can easily say that um really he definitely arrived on that island. Uh definitely with Willem Dafoe. And he definitely ended up having his inner not out by sequels at the end. How he got there <laughs> I think it's it's, uh, who the hell knows. I mean, I the most likely never had many nights when they were like singing weird sea shanties with each other and arguing over lobster and cooking or gazing into lights like a whole lot. Probably none of that would have actually happened. It's just he got there, an accident happened. That's just one of them being irresponsible or Willem Dafoe dropping him from that lighthouse when he was trying to paint the uh, <laughs> the surface of it. And that's just how it ended up. Or, you know, Willem Dafoe's character was swept out to sea by one of the giant storms that was on the island many different times. Very mundane explanations for, uh, you know... For
0: some really cool shit?
1: For some really cool shit, yeah.
0: All right, fair enough. Do you think that William Dafoe, at any point, was nefarious or had nefarious intentions?
1: He had... uh I I wouldn't say nefarious intention. I don't know about nefarious intentions. Uh, He had ideals that, in enforcing them, he became a nefarious character, I feel. If you tell someone they can't do his thing, they want to do the thing. So Pattinson says, I want to see the light. You can't see the light. Well, I really want to see the light now.
0: Yeah, this is basically like teenage psychology 101. Yeah. Can't do it, but I want to. I
1: want to see the light. Okay, here's a light. Oh, that's a light. Better get back to swabbing, huh? Yeah, yeah, you really should. Thanks. All right. Take care. Let me know if you want to see the light again for whatever reason. But
0: it had Saint Elmo's fire in it itself. It was salvation itself. The very spirit
1: of young Demi Moore was in this thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, that is Saint Elmo's fire. I looked into the face of Emilio Estevez, (laughs) and no, it's Saint Elmo's fire. For those who are are curious about what the fuck that is, it is a phenomenon in sailing that's really cool.
1: Oh yeah, the, The stack electricity like in the atmosphere. Has to go somewhere and yeah. so goes the highest point around. And if a, if a tall ship is out there, the highest point is its mast. So there are many stories, and like this is like a story in Moby Dick, and like there are many real accounts mm-hmm. of this where. Ship masts began to glow, apparently, to the they sailors. Cool. And Saint Elmo was the patron saint of travel, I believe. So life. in
0: sailing, well it was actually Saint Armo with an oh. R, um and it's a mispronunciation that stuck. Boom. So yeah. So if you're like, but Elmo's the dude from Sesame Street, you're not <laughs> wrong. There there's no St. Elmo. It's a St. Armo, <laughs> but it's fine. Um e- either way. Which is, is sort of an Erasmus thing. But,
1: but. but uh, yeah, when sailors saw that, they were like, Oh my god, it's St. Amos Fire, man! Yeah.
0: yeah, and then it was popularized by... <laughs> The Brat Pack movie. <laughs> St. Elmo's Fire, which is about, like, what, like, a pizza joint or something? Oh,
1: hell no, I can't remember it's that, movie. No save my life.
0: But, uh, yeah, no, But I mean, St. Elmo's Fire is just a really cool ship phenomenon, mm-hmm. and so I guess the lighthouse would be the highest point as well, and so you mm-hmm. have this idea of this churning electricity in the air, often before the storm, and mm-hmm. so that, that does kind of sit as a suitable metaphor. So... For me, what I do love about this movie, and I love about The Witch as well, in terms of its incorporation of folklore and the fact that it has no discernible answer, to me is the answer, because folklore itself, in our natural world, how it operates, is in this sort of liminal space Mm. in which we can't say for sure, one way or the other, if if the folklore is true, Mm. if it's not true. Of course... I mean there, there's no scientific reason certain folklore should be true, right? But that, that's the beautiful thing about folklore is that it, it defies all reasoning because mm. it's a way of sort of creating a narrative to explain yet to be explained phenomenon and people sort of throughout their daily lives are going to side on a varying scale of to what extent they will believe in a certain folklore moment or not. And so that is reality right is the fact that folklore as a narrative as an object as a concept whether it really fully sort of happens in the way that the story says it is happens or not is a part of reality folklore Mm -hmm. is a part of reality and so in this film in its reality folklore and all of its effects whether those effects are physical psychological or just sort of metaphorical is part of the reality Mm -hmm. um and so I just love that about, and like, so the witch does that too, where it kind of creates that space where some of the folklore might be real, some of it might not be, all of it might be, all of it might not be. Mm. But the most true form to reality is to just accept the fact that there's, there's shit in reality that we don't know on the answers mm. to, and that we create stories to try to explain them. And that's so cool, because <laughs> there, there are a lot of films that try to push one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. that try to verify folklore or try to discredit folklore. And that's really not the purpose yeah,
1: of folklore. Taking an right? almost documentary approach to something like that, which, yeah, no, that's, that's not the fun part of it.
0: It's like you just let it be. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is something kind of fun about the idea that William Defoe is just Gaslighting th- yeah. this dude. So if I had to kind of pick my favorite um answer narrative, it would probably be the weird fiction Lovecraftian reading. Because if if there's a Lovecraftian reading to be had in anything, like I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Lovecraft, mm. and that yeah that the weird the world of the sea has some crazy shit in it, and that somehow Defoe has this relationship with the sea, and he manipulates and disposes of Robert Pattinson through a series of events because Pattinson is has not been deemed an apt keeper of the lighthouse in the island he's actually almost I mean it isn't really literally it's more figuratively but as, as literal as a figurative expression can be a man of the land right because uh-huh. he is a logger he, yes. he comes he, he doesn't know anything about the sea he doesn't respect the sea's traditions so <laughs> fuck it toss him out <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, Defoe. He doesn't deserve the lighthouse. So, that's, uh... So... That was that trip.
1: We've, uh, gone down that folklore uh, rabbit hole for a little while there. I'm not surprised you went down for that long.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, like, this movie is folklore, right? Mm-hmm. I just... It's all of it, it just, it just to... it's
1: taking It's sampling from so many different and wonderful sources that, yeah, I mean, how can you not love what they're doing here?
0: But you finally have a movie that doesn't give you answers. That's always what you're saying, is that you don't want a movie that gives you answers. I
1: don't want to, I don't exclusively want movies that don't give me answers, but when a movie doesn't, I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. If they're doing things right, and mm-hmm. this movie is, they are creating so much folklore so much mystery in it and at the end you're like there's so much was going on like a mundane diegetic answer to like what happens in this story nothing will be satisfying
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know you can make up whatever ending to it you want and no matter what you say it's probably
0: valid yeah And know that's that's a great way to do a film i agree that you're not providing answers, but you're providing potential answers. Mm-hmm. So um, it is always the problem when you you end a movie without an answer, mm-hmm. but there also just is no possible answer. Right? Right. So it's just like, what the fuck? Now, <laughs> like, what am I supposed to take from this? But you can take so much from this movie. Yeah.
1: And I think that, like, you know, to, like, give you the opposite of what I'm saying, like, that I don't mind there not being an answer to it. I think there's a way to do a movie like this where instead of this kind of dive into folklore and like no proper answer at the end, you could probably do something like this and turn it into a mystery where one half of the movie is we see what happened on the island. Maybe sailors show up, they recover Robert Pattinson. Bring him back, nurse him back to health, and say like, "What the hell happened here, man?" And he tries to recount what was going on. And as it as they continue, maybe they find pieces of the mystery to put back together. And at the end, he's like, "Oh my god, I killed him! Oh no!" You know, something like that is possible to do. That I can't really. I'm having trouble thinking of like a type of movie that does that. But that is a a narrative and mystery film that works and is mm-hmm. perfectly fine. It can be done just as well as this movie can.
0: Yeah, but they even had the Roanoke kind of quality. The yeah. idea that somebody's going to come back to this mm-hmm. island, and they're just not going to be there. Yeah. I
1: think that if you're going to do like that mystery reveal, it does need to be a very original story. To try and do that with something like the story of the Roanoke thing, or Jack the Ripper, where you are creating mm-hmm. a canonical conclusion to this real-life mystery, mm-hmm. is... Well, it's just a little insensitive to the actual, to the real life mystery, because we, we don't know the real answers to that. So to just make one up for the sake of cinema is kind of cheap.
0: That's how you get the Brian De Palma Black Dahlia film.
1: Oh, is that what, that what happened there?
0: Oh my god, there's so many things that do and don't happen in the Brian De Palma Black Dahlia film. None of them are good. Ah. Uh, so <laughs> he tries at some point in the third act to kind mm-hmm. of solve the Black Dahlia mystery. Mm-hmm. And it's a not satisfying conclusion either. But that's part of the problem with these kind of mysteries that prevail is they prevail because they're so mysterious. So the second you try to put any sort of a c- conclusion to them, even if it's a cool conclusion, it's still not as satisfying as the mystery. Right. So people don't generally want answer. They do. There's something in the soul that yearns for the answer, but at the same time, mm-hmm. you're not satisfied when you get it. Yeah. So I have that experience also in watching the, you know, like the 2020 like daylight mystery kind of stuff where it's like mm. this is the mystery and you're like whoa and it's like and here's how it's solved and i'm like oh <laughs> like, okay moving on i need another mystery because usually there is like a mundane explanation and that's boring but uh yeah no the brand of palm of like dahlia Phil is just such a hot mess it's crazy how bad it is but i've tried multiple times so on top of that it's just boring mm-hmm. like, and that's this is the worst thing you can say about a movie right not that if it's good or bad but just that it's boring <laughs>
1: For me, for Brian De Palma, you got Carrie, you got Phantom of the Paradise, Mission and you, Impossible and the first Mission Impossible movie, and like that's all that I need.
0: Yeah. I know. Snake right? That is right? Brian
1: De Palma, yeah. Yeah.
0: Brian De Palma has brought us so much, mm-hmm. which is also kinda of why it's disappointing that little It's is such a <laughs> such a fall from his, his usual work. So any any other things about about this. Oh, our our top top six.
1: <laughs> which i didn't even do for this because there's like three people in this movie
0: <laughs> i mean I, I have a top six
1: okay go ahead go, go go for your top six
0: okay so you can just comment on it sure. i
1: guess
0: so the honorary number six whoever built that light of like, course <laughs> that light is gorgeous mm-hmm. it's so so wonderful just the glasswork and the mm-hmm. way that it shines on screen so yeah we, we got that one uh, number five, David Eggers, Um, or not David Eggers, sorry, Robert Eggers. Robert. <laughs> he had a Lynchian quality in this, which is where the David comes in. Oh, of um, so <laughs> he, uh, yeah, I mean, this is his second film. Both this and The Witch have been just really stunning pieces of craftsmanship. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I'm really excited to see what he does next. I
1: haven't seen The Witch myself, but from what I understand, both Defoe and Pattinson saw The Witch and... Sought out Robert Akers because they're just like, dude, you did this.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we need to do something. Well, let's do it. And he's like, well, two actors reached out to me, so movie with two actors, I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great. Number four, that damn goal. <laughs> like that. C-caw! C-caw! That one-eyed asshole of a seabird. <laughs>
1: Fourth best, I said earlier. Fourth best actor in the movie.
0: He was so great. That little girl, like he was bringing it. I, I, I did want to just punch that seal in the face <laughs> whenever he showed up. Like he, he was such a dick. <laughs> and I hate birds already. And so ah, it was. It was already a chilling experience Very to look effective. into the eyes of that mm-hmm. beady-eyed little mm-hmm. dinosaur. And yeah, it was. Uh, It was kind of stunning to get a physical kind of performance Mm. out of this untamable creature. So Mm. that was pretty awesome. Number three, I'm actually going to give to William Dafoe. Interesting. Surprisingly, yeah. Okay, all right. I I mean, he was great. I I would not take anything away from uh, his performance. He was perfect. He embodied this guy. But this guy was so unlikable, which is why I gave <laughs> Robert Pattinson the number two slot. Ah, uh,
1: okay, yeah.
0: And it's, it's, I mean, you know, they, they kind of, they're both this movie. They're both mm-hmm. really integral to it, so it's hard to to kind of really pick one over the other.
1: Yeah, I think that's why, another reason I didn't bother doing, like, a top list of anything, because I, I personally could not put one above the other. They're both so integral to this movie, and they bring so much of it. If I was going to, like, put one above the other, I think I would put Robert Pattinson, because, again, I just really love what this guy is doing, like, the choices he's making in his career, like, Mm -hmm. both, like, the choices he makes in his performances, and also just in his career, like, he's taking some chances, and they're Mm -hmm. working for him. So, you know, respect, Defoe's been in the game for a really long time, so, I mean, he Mm kind of has his career path, you know, like, laid out, and he can do Crazy shit he can do. Mainstream shit too. It, it's it works for him.
0: But. Yeah, and the fact that Robert Pattinson is holding his own against William Defoe, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, deserves even a little bit more accolades for, for me in, in terms of what he's doing here. Mm. I also do think that in some ways, Pattinson's role might be a little bit harder to pull off mm. because Defoe's character is something that we have seen as a kind of. Type
1: mm, we know the, Before, this...
0: the grizzled guy that's kind of a dick. He's yeah. sadistic. Mm-hmm. He has these sort of Shakespearean moments of mm. performance. He did a phenomenal job, but I've also... I've seen that character on stage sure. before. What's happening with Robert Pattinson's is... A slightly more subtle performance in mm-hmm. some ways and thus it was a little bit even more impressive to me particularly when he's looking into the lights mm. he goes through so many almost yeah kind of Brickdalian isolation expressions mm. that alienated that audience in terms of i almost understand this emotion but it also seems like it's some sort of ecclesiastical martyrdom that I, yeah, that's almost inaccessible to what I understand as the spectrum of human emotion. <laughs> that his face work, the the sort of, the micro sort of movements that were happening in his muscles throughout a lot of this were just really, really interesting to watch. And to bring it back around where I said that, like, you can kind of catch glimmers of this in the first Twilight film. <laughs> that he has those <laughs> moments where you know when like bella walks into the chemistry room oh, and he just like God. almost like vomits all of his <sighs> eggs like all over her <laughs> and it's just this over you can tell that this guy just wants to work first and foremost through his face mm. <laughs> This kind of what robert pattinson always seems to have been on like the precipice of wanting to do and mm. so he really gets to play around um with those face muscles here um and then of Course, number one is uh, what I'm going to call the holy trinity of this film, uh, okay. which are the lighting and the camera work and the sound design. Okay. So, that holy trinity yeah, of whatever's happening, the cinematographer together. and the, the sound mixer and the cameraman on this film. I
1: love how, like, you know, throughout the whole film, we hear like that siren, like, the, not the siren mermaid, but the actual horn. Yeah, the
0: fog horn. Every
1: now and then, it's like just in the background, very consistent. Um, yeah, I just, it's uh, Kind of everything about that is it's done right. from
0: the depths weird sound and the second time i was watching this i was watching it with a professional sailor slash navy man uh-huh. and he actually kind of brought up the sound of that foghorn commenting that it sounded different he would heard foghorns for a really long time and not in a criticism way just in a like this sounds Mm. more uncanny more haunting than foghorns that i'm used to and we were trying to figure out if, well is that because that this is sort of a representation more of a 19th century foghorn that might actually have more of that sonic quality or are they doing something a little bit with this sound mixing with this purposeful creation of a sound that is sort of in this liminal otherness space to really kind of push on the Mm -hmm. haunting nature of the film I don't know, because I I don't know what the the sound replication of foghorns in the 1890s were. I didn't look it up, because I'm terrible.
1: Yeah, you are.
0: In this case. Only this case.
1: I think I have, uh, I need a little dose of something. I need a little dose of, of something that is our safe word, London. (laughs)
0: <laughs> like you even know what reality is
1: thank you reality safe wording the hell out of this thing
0: reality out
1: oh, sweet release thank god Escaping
0: to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism! Space!